trying to get up, I be smoking till I feel beheaded For the ones who wish it on me, hope these niggas perish We was flying over London, wasn't in affairs But I could see it all, I saw my vision clearing You can't compare, I feel the whisper hit my head when I be in the air Took my sister cause she missed the hand why I miss my parents We was ready for the war If you click the clearance Since I was in the cares Holding in this frown Like when you feel embarrassed And instead of caring I was heavy staring Hoping not to feel despair Hungry when I feel the air Never sitting on the thought Because my mission shared If the last one didn't work We tried different prayer Tried different prayer uh, hungry when I feel the air Never sitting on the thought because my mission shared If the last one didn't work, we tried different prayer Tried different prayer For the changes in the air Grew without a brother, so I keep some near Who was really with you when you needed them Sun going shine, hard to see the end Absentee mind, but the wisdom reach mine. No, they try and bleed mine. Making up for deep time, my loss to this shit. What's the cause for the Lord to assist? Lost focus, found fault. Still, my brother's shining, I'm in awe. Swim through ways to reach the shore. No, I felt the peace before. Needed back for the scars. Skin blacker than the stars, home. Still, it's hard to catch him like a lawn dog. When I feel the head, never sitting on the thought because my mission shared. If the last one didn't work, we tried different friends. Tried different Was that a long time or was that a normal time? It felt like it, it was a week, right? Right? I don't know, Quentin. What, how long? Might be, was like that a, long, might be a, might be a, li- a little over a week, but nothing, but nothing crazy. No. Yeah, right. It was just normal. It feels like so, so, so long ago. I can't even remember the last thing we talked about. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's true. It's like for some reason, this felt longer. Maybe, maybe more has in the world has happened. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's it's just been weird. I mean. We took like a lot of time off because of the pandemic, and it feels like we've kind of come back, but it also feels like why? <laughs> I hate to say that because I, I enjoy doing the show <laughs> yeah. and I enjoy talking to you and stuff, but it is like the pandemic's not over, and there's not a ton to talk about, especially not the kind of stuff I like to talk about, right? I don't know about you. Right. It's just like, I don't know. Fuck, I just. I'm, it, oh, I'm telling you, like, like I, I made the joke before, but like. We're like not that far off from like just becoming like a fucking like le- like Leninist podcast or something. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um. There was we asked I asked before we started is there any news that's going on but there I just remember there was like some big news of something that happened I can't remember what the fuck it is I guess it doesn't really matter God, I wouldn't be able to tell you what it was Yeah, it's like some kind of WWE bullshit like always someone someone getting fired or or someone coming back you know what I mean it's always the same shit. I mean, um, are, you, are you excited for Roman Reigns versus, versus Cesaro? Yeah. Oh, that's it. There we go. Roman Reigns, Daniel Bryan. Daniel Bryan's a free agent. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh, that's yeah. That's the big I mean, deal. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, actually, um, I actually like the SmackDown match more than the, more than the Fastlane match. For sure. I'm with that. Um. God, how many big singles? But that was like the third of their singles matches, right? They're like big yeah. singles matches, really? Yeah, they've, they, yeah, they've only they've had they've had three, and I think yeah, 
I wound up that wound up being my favorite one of the three. Yeah, not uh, not surprising. It's definitely yeah for me. I think I'd have to agree. I'd have to. I didn't go back and watch the first one, and that was from like early on in in Roman's uh, kind of career, I guess. Uh, but it was like a breakout match. I remember um, even after that, it was like we uh, barely got into. Um, the, there was like an Orton match after that, and then that was like the, or maybe it was before. I don't remember. But either way, the, or, like, the Orton like match the, was first. That it was a uh, Roman yeah. versus Orton at SummerSlam 2014, and a lot of people liked that match. I didn't really yeah. think much of it, and then and then it was the Brian uh, Roman match from Fastlane. Yeah, I thought I thought the Orton match was good, but at the time it was a standout because it was the first really good Roman singles match. I remember that because um, up until that right. point. He had not. He had been completely unproven up until that point as like a guy who could even have a good singles match, really. Um, so yeah, there's th- there's that, and uh, yeah, it's crazy because we talked about it with the Daniel Bryan or, or Roman Reigns thing and how they have such good chemistry with each other. Yet they've had only three matches, and now that might be it because Daniel Bryan's a free agent. What do you uh, what do you think about free agent Daniel Bryan? I mean, he's gonna resign. If, if he didn't resign, I'd be shocked. Like, um, the dude can pretty much do whatever he wants there. I'm under the impression, based off what I've seen, that the dude just wants to get a contract that gives him a little bit more flexibility. I guess to if he wants to go work, uh, WXW or an Evolve or a Progress or go down to NXT or go fuck around in NXT UK or whatever kind of shit like that. I think he's looking for that kind of flexibility at this point, which is interesting for Brian because he is such a big star and one of the biggest stars in WWE history that he still has a desire to go uh, roll, roll around and engage with uh, engage with these other talents on these different brands to the point where it's like, fuck, fuck man, just, just go. <laughs> but... I th- but I think that all the talent that he wants to work with, or a lot of the talent that he wants to work with, is all under the all under the WWE umbrella. And I think as long as he has the flexibility to go and work with those types of types of people, then I think that that's that's enough for him. Yeah, I mean he's he's at a level now that he's never been at before. Obviously, I mean very few people are ever even get to the level that he's at now, but to be able to then go out and do whatever he would want at this level would be very different than where he was at before ever on the indies. So there's probably something to that that's got to be enticing for him. But as you said, it's it's kind of if he's not willing to leave the WWE umbrella, then there's not really a lot for him just because we've talked about it a ton, but the indie market, there's not a bunch out there really. So it would be... Either he has to leave and go to somewhere else completely so he can wrestle some of the guys in AEW or New Japan if he wants, if that's what he really cares about. Um, Because otherwise, yeah, like being able to just work, you know, approved indie or international shots while still being under a WWE contract is not going to give him really much of anything. I think the big thing that he wants, and it's really fucking stupid to care about because it's still 
for some reason I think he just got it in his head and he doesn't want to ever let it go and it's another thing where it's like I like I tweeted out saying like someone make sure that Daniel Bryan's aware that uh, New Japan sucks at this point so he doesn't think that going <laughs> there is go- is going to be fun for him um, I, I mean yeah but at the same time it's like, like it might do I really like I'll take Bryan versus Okada still I'll take another round of Bryan versus Shingo I would love to see Bryan versus JY like you know as much as the, uh, you know, the whole, like, New Japan sucks thing is still, uh, like, a lot of it, a lot of it being true, honestly, <laughs> but it's still a roster where it's like, oh, maybe, yeah, I would like to see Brian wrestle these guys, but, but that's all it is. That's all it remains. It's not, oh, my God, I'm so excited to see Brian there in 2021 like it would have been in 2015 or 2016, maybe. In twenty twenty in twenty twenty one, it's like, oh yeah, I mean like, I, I guess Brian versus Zack Saber Junior in twenty in twenty twenty one would be cool now, or that Brian versus Ishii in twenty twenty one would be cool now. But like, it's not the same interest factor as it would have been for Brian versus Ishii in twenty fifteen. <laughs> no, and I mean I'm I'm with you. Like Brian versus Ibushi, there's like, there's plenty of good matches there that I would like to see, and Daniel Bryan taking you know a summer or a fall off and being in the G one. Um, is great to get all of those one-off matches done and you can see what they're like and then that's that's kind of it, right? Like, that would be enough. My point, though, in that was not even to say there's an issue with the New Japan thing. It was just kind of building into the idea that it is this... He's got something in his head based on maybe a period of time where he was paying a little bit of more attention or a period of time before the quarantine and it's not leaving, which is another one. The big one is wanting to do the um the mexico city anniversary anniversary show in the oh, i can't think of the name this the building that cmll runs and everyone makes a big deal about um, arena mexico arena mexico that's it yeah like still having it in his head that he can do the big atlantis hair versus mask match or something like that still exists when it doesn't there isn't that match right 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 anymore and i think that he still has it in his head that he wants to do it and when you think about daniel bryan i mean i hate to say it but like the 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 way that the the whole interview went with him talking about feeling like a un unmoored unconnected being kind of having an out-of-body experience in the wrestlemania main event the the trios match with edge and and roman reigns I think that he just, he's still living in the fantasy world in his head. And I think that once he got there, he would realize that it's not, it doesn't exist anymore and probably have the same reaction. So to me, it doesn't feel like it's worth it. I mean, what would be the, you know, theoretically, there's plenty of good wrestlers that he could wrestle in the Arena Mexico setting like that for the anniversary show and make it be a big deal and have good matches. But, number one, they wouldn't happen because the wrestlers who he could have good matches with aren't presented as top guys, so it wouldn't be a main event. Uh, You know what I mean? Or it would be he'd wrestle against someone who is the top guy, and then the match would, I won't say be bad, but it wouldn't be great, and it wouldn't be this big dream match thing. So, for Daniel Bryan, I just think, I hate to say it, but I think he's just gotten so old that, like, his time has passed him by, and I don't think that there's really a place for him to do any of this dream stuff anymore i think he lived well, out his, well, feel, his well, life you know go ahead i i think he's had his peak but we're still talking about a guy that like again if if you said um that right now you could give me 
Daniel Bryan versus Timothy Thatcher on NXT TakeOver for like 20, 20 however, however minutes, I'm taking that in a heartbeat over like 95% of matches WWE can put together right now. And that's still the level I think that Bryan is operating on where he's still maybe the wrestler of the year currently five months in. And yeah, like now we might we might see him uh take a take a break or uh you know, he might might take some time for him to pop up into a different company if he was even leaving or when he pops up in WWE it might be months down the line. But five months in there was a just a legit argument that this is still the best wrestler in the world. So I'm coming at it from a standpoint of yeah, like maybe his finger isn't as on the pulse as it used as maybe it used to be or appeared to be a few years ago. He's talking about how badly he wants to wrestle Shinsuke Nakamura, but I do think that this is a guy that when you just look at within WWE's own talent pool, that like Jesus Christ, there's a bunch of matches that I'd want to see Brian in. It would just be a matter of like. It being given the time of day and Brian being able to go out there and do it and be taken seriously, you know, like a more like a a bigger scale, more grand version of, I guess, what Chris Hero was doing in NXT UK uh, with his with his rounds with his rounds match with Sid Scala and then the Tyler Bate match and everything. I think it'd be more akin to that than uh, than this like idea that peak Brian Danielson is coming is coming to New Japan. Yeah, and and my point is not even to say that Daniel Bryan Daniels and Daniel Bryan is not still in the conversation for the best wrestler on the planet, which is very fucking true. We'll get into, you know, some of the the talk about the big champions on the indies and I hate to say it, but the guys who people on the indies are, you know, touting as the wrestler best wrestlers in the world, I'm, I'm sorry, they're not like head and shoulders above Daniel Bryan at this point. There's just no conversation to, that can you can make me believe that. He's still He's a living legend at this point when it comes to professional wrestling. He's a guy that me and you both firmly believe is the greatest wrestler of all time, and he is still continuing to be one of the best wrestlers wrestling. Like, that is really not a super common thing for people to have, but that's where he's at right now. My point is that the wrestling world, and it's hard to say with COVID because the wrestling world is very, very shrunk right now. We don't know where the landscape is going to look like if, you know, when things are back to normal. But I just feel like the wrestling world outside of the WWE bubble is just not the wrestling world that Daniel Bryan would think that it is or feels like he thinks that it is. Like I said, he's never been this big of a star on the indies or outside of the wrestling world before or outside of the WWE wrestling world. And the idea that he thinks that he could possibly go back to the wrestling landscape the way that it was before and it just doesn't exist. And so that's where I that's what I mean is like he would go back and and there's just not really a place where no matter how good he is and you talked about it because he's in WWE and he's one of the greatest greatest wrestlers going and they already have plenty of great wrestlers that he could be having phenomenal matches with it's not allowed to happen and then if he leaves the WWE I don't think that he there's any place where they let him just have great matches I just I just don't think it happens anymore there's not a place like that anymore where, you know, like, it could ha- like again, we can see what happens if wrestling gets back to normal. But as of right now, I mean, <laughs> the big talk that we've referenced and people have referenced a ton, look at AEW. Who's their fucking wrestler? Who's the great wrestler in AEW? There's not really any. They're top guys. Someone like Moxley, who's phenomenal, 
is not a great technical wrestler. It's you know, yeah, it's 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 Darby the like the wrestler guy there is Darby, <laughs> and it, and he's Darby Allen. Like he does really good lucha inspired kind of that style of of Yave. He doesn't even really do Yaves, but he can do some of it, and he can do some of the technical like lucha style stuff. But that's his thing. And Daniel Bryan obviously has worked lucha, and he's talked about it. But he has talked about that lucha was the style that was like the hardest for him to get. Like eventually, he says he kind of got it, but would still be his weak suit so to say yeah like he could have a great match with darby allen but but uh that wouldn't be it and then other other than that they don't have like great wrestler guys i mean kenny omega like i'm sorry but kenny omega is the height of the biggest issue to me that's wrong with wrestling and, and we could talk about it a little bit more later but the kind of the david Meltzer brain of wrestling where everything has turned into like that's how wrestling works it's like kenny omega is kind of the the face of that um and there's obviously another guy who's who's fighting for that title who happens to be the champion in another very big company um as being the kind of the face and the peak the pinnacle of uh hey the pinnacle that'll lead us into the first match we talk about tonight um the pinnacle of uh of the dave Meltzer brain wrestling where it's just like about moves and it's like even Meltzer can review a match and say well for the first 20 minutes it was boring and nothing happened but then it was great and it's just kind of like well which is crazy which is yeah. crazy because like the match in which he was he, which he was saying that about like the first 20 minutes were actually was actually like really good right so it just it just goes to show that he doesn't even understand what good wrestling is when it's in front of him and then the idea that you can say that a match can go for 20 minutes and not be that in, in like interesting to you but then still say that the match is great is fucking insane like i don't understand how you can say that if a match bores me for 20 minutes then the match is bad i don't care what they do after that because if there's 20 minutes of me being bored then they really fucked up like i'm sorry there's no way to to get around that so yeah just it shows both sides of what's wrong with the melter brain wrestling critique um but yeah, oh, I guess <laughs> this week we were the Long Boys. Didn't even get into that. Oh, that's the name of the episode for everyone. Um, and we'll start off again, like I said, with the Pinnacle, the first long match. Um, Blood and Guts finally happens. Is it a year later? Is it over a year since it was supposed to first happen? Um, uh, I think. Oh, I think. Oh, I think it's uh, over uh, a year. Man, twenty twenty is such a fucking blur. Twenty twenty is such say. a fucking blur. Like, yeah, but I think over a year. Yeah, it has to be over a year because it was supposed to happen on one of the last shows that was going to have fans before the quarantine started, which would have been March of uh, 2020. So, you know what I mean? Around the time where you started to basically say that you weren't able to have fans in the building. And then it was like, it was becoming a question because uh, Brody King, I think actually it might have been the show that Brody King debuted on, which was the first show that they did without fans. Brody Lee. Yes, sorry debuted on which was the first show that they did without fans um was supposed to be the the blood and guts show i think that that is the case and i might be off but at least it was like close enough so that would definitely have been over a year ago and it was supposed to be the inner circle versus the elite basically um was the way that they were going and here we are the inner circle still in the match but now they're baby faces and they're going up against the pinnacle and what a wild ride to get here right like you've got this pinnacle team of sean spears which is weird to think about if you told me blood and guts was going to happen a year later and and sean spears was going to be in it i wouldn't have expected that um mj or not mjf well mjf is in the match but i meant to say uh, ftr uh you know the the revival and and mjf and wardlow on one side against the inner circle team um 
and just very odd where you end up here with the inner circle beeping baby faces, pinnacle as the heels. You do a war games match. It's pretty. I mean, they, it's it's definitely updated, but uh, it's still very much paying tribute to the history of war games a lot better than we'll say the modern kind of NXT war games matches. But but yeah, overall big picture and and kind of getting into this. What did you think, Quentin? Um. FTR was really good in it. Uh, that's the main, that's my main takeaway. I actually like everything up until the point where Jericho joins the match. I think it's actually pretty good, bordering on very good. And then once it gets into the portion of the match where pinfall, where uh, so like, I guess like I think it's like a, a surrender type deal, right? Like the surrender or quit. Once it got to that portion where everyone else is in the in the ring and now a fall could occur, I feel like the match went off a cliff. It was kind of jarring to see something like that on television. I will I will say that. But one of the problems with that is I feel like this match went way too long. And uh the screen and screen and everything didn't 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 help that fact and I think that how long it went definitely did the match a disservice. Um, and you saw the inner circle, inner circle just trying to bide time and playing to the camera and doing all this other stuff. And then it went from an MJF beat down to a Wardlow fired up. And then they started beating Wardlow down. And it felt all very weird and eventually kind of inorganic as eventually MJF and Jericho made their way to the cage. And... I think that that's the most disappointing thing about this match is that I felt like it was good. Like, I don't think this is a complete shit show or a complete train wreck. I think that a lot of this was good. And then ev- and then eventually they just got in their own way and made this thing more complicated than it had to be. Um, even down to the finish where MJF, uh, MJF wins because he's teasing throwing Jericho off the top and Sammy Guevara steps in and says, and says they'll quit. I I understand it. I get it. You want Jericho to still look like a badass. You want MJF to look like a diabolical heel. Uh, you're trying to uh, get all these things going keep these, and keep these stories moving and keep these characters with their um, personalities intact. But I think that definitely did a disservice to the uh, portion of the match that was going on before. Yeah, it's a tough thing, and that's honestly, in some ways, that is why this is almost a better homage to the original War Games than a lot of the stuff you even get. Because even historically, War Games matches like everything before you get the the five on five and you can actually get the surrender um, is like the best part. Like a lot of times, War Games fall like they tend to not completely fall off a cliff, but they tend to really lose momentum. Once everyone's in, because the point of the story of the match is is all the build and the people coming in. You know what I mean, and and the violence and everything that goes with that. That's the real point of the match, and that's kind of the the weird history of the war games because like it's put, you know promoted as the match beyond, and they talk about that part of the match being the big deal and all this and that. But it's like that's usually the the least important and the most boring part of the of the matches. Um, so I mean, obviously, or at least to me. The, the MVP of the whole match is Dax Hardwood. He gets a little bit of the extra nod for blading. 
Oh, go ahead. I, th- I thought I thought I thought Cash was better. You thought Cash was better? I like I said. I think yeah. FT. If I was gonna give like if I could say the team of FTR as the MVP, I would. I just give the nod to Dax for bl- for being a fucking bloody mess. Like he bladed early and then just was like the the biggest bleeder of the entire thing. Um, so that was the only extra little nod that I gave to him. Um, but I could definitely see Cash as well, and that's why I would say like for me, the MVPs for that for their team for the the uh, the pinnacle team would be FTR as a whole, and then the M- MVPs for the inner circle team is uh, proud and powerful EYFBO. And then if I'm gonna pick the I, members, I I didn't I didn't, I like, didn't like I didn't I didn't no not they were good like they were like they did their did their role fine. I felt like especially for uh, EYFBO that to get some uh, to get some blood from them, I think would have what I think would have gotten them to an, I think would have taken it to a, to another level that maybe would have been able to sustain how boring the la, the last portion of the match yeah. was it it did, it it did bother me a little bit that the that the face side didn't didn't, didn't bleed at all yeah um i could see that for me like the same thing as as how i said Dax was the standout for me um for the other side it would be Ortiz uh i thought that Ortiz came across violent. Uh, I really liked the bump that he took to the floor in between the cage and the, and the ring. I thought that that was a nice little note that kind of called back to some, some just unique weird bumps that you get in war games history. Like people getting there, like Terry Funk getting his head stuck in between the rings and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It was just, it felt like one of those wild and he felt like a wild man throughout it. Um, Santana fine. But I think the reason why those, the two tag teams stood out to me is I just felt like there's, there's more there still. And I really like their dynamic with each other. And they feel like they should continue to wrestle each other. And meanwhile, everyone else, no one else really stood out as like particularly heated. Um, MJF and Jericho stuff just still to this point doesn't do anything for me. I was hoping Wardlaw would get a little bit more of a shine here. But unfortunately, it was like he came out, he wrecked house a little bit. And then it was like the rest of the match, it was supposed to be the, the you know, him and, and Hager was the story. And there's just nothing there. I mean, Hager is just boring. I, it would have been better off. If you had kind of paired up Wardlow and, and Gravara, I think, and had them do some stuff with uh, each other, I think the problem with the inner circle is that um, this face turn to try to make it seem like yeah they're assholes, but they're our assholes. They built AEW, all that kind of stuff, and no one in that unit is just endearing or likable enough for that to really be the case. Yeah. In, 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 a, in a match like this, the closest thing that you might have is like Sammy Guevara in the little mini story that he had going on with MJF and the tension within within the inner circle because of because of their problems. But even Sammy, Sammy is not a natural babyface. Baby, being a babyface isn't Sam isn't Sammy's go to role. So I think I think that lack of a clear likable babyface. From the inner from the inner circle, uh, I thought I thought I thought that definitely affect, affected affected the match quite quite a bit, and that's why I have to give credit to FT, to FTR so much, and even Sean Spears. I think Sean Spears played it played it played as well played as well uh, played his role well here. That even facing people who yeah they're over in AEW, I understand that, but when you're selling this when you're selling this wrestling match and not facing these people who are these awesome baby faces. I think FTR did a really good job of making themselves extremely, extremely dislikable and getting, getting these people whose 
best roles are maybe aren't necessarily being baby faces to be likable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and they, they tried a ton ripping up the ring or ripping up the, the mat and, and, you know, taking the ring apart. And, and the finish, I think, was was dumb, if I'm perfectly honest. Not even just the, the flying. I don't... I really don't give a shit about stunt bumps with crash pads. I, I, I know that a lot of people, you know, have their issues with it and it takes them. I don't, I, I don't care. It's like, to me, wrestling is all kind of, you know, meant to be bullshit and it's just, it is what it is. Like, that's kind of the point. So, unless it's like, a, like, egregious, you know, and it's just like a pill, like you can see the pillow. But like, the idea that at least they like put some wood over it, covered it up. They showed it maybe a little bit too much, but it's just like, whatever, it is what it is, you know? It's just part of the the, the, the kind of the nature of wrestling. Um, but even still, I didn't like the way it was, like, presented and set up towards. I don't really like, like, that type of finish. I don't like the, like, make the other person surrender or else I'm going to do something kind of thing that people will do in these kind of setups. I, it's just not... To me, I like the more pure, you just make the guy give up kind of thing. Um, and especially because, I don't know, you're just, you're trying to, obviously you're clearly just forcing like a big stunt bump. And that's the whole point. And I just don't think that that's necessary. Um, I think that a match like this, war games in general, should be built around brutality. Um, and that's why like someone, like I said, like Ortiz to me stood out because he felt like he was in a brutal, violent fight. He was bringing aggression throughout. He was, again, like, very violent in, his, in the nature of his attacks. But it was really basic. And it's like, that's what I want. I want the War Games to just end on something simple. I don't need it to even be kind of that. I think that you're just trying to get a little bit too smart doing doing something like that. And it's just silly. And I know that, like, you know, it, it, it looks cool or you think it's going to be memorable. But I just, I think it takes you out of the concept of, of what it is. Um, so, yeah, I just think again like you said it was good but then it just kind of lost steam i don't think that the inner circle as you said don't they don't really have any babyface cachet really um i think it's really tough because it's just i think that jericho has a lot of bad will from his personality and his online presence at this point but 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 also it was it was so soon too relatively from everything um and i made the argument that i understand why it went that way because if you look at it in totality the MJF and the Inner Circle story went on for a while. And then you get the angle with them kicking him out and then the introduction of the Pinnacle. So when you factor in MJF's time in in the Inner Circle, it wasn't a short program, but I still think another another, another month or a month and a half would 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 have done the Inner Circle a lot of good here. Well, yeah, and that's why the, it's infuriating. And I, you know, I hate to always harken back to this stuff, but it's extra infuriating um, to hear this stuff from fucking Meltzer when he talks about this stuff because he he just completely caps for the shit like it's like just, oh, okay, well, yeah, sure. Like, he doesn't... This kind of stuff, He will when it's questioned, he never just says, like, yeah, this was not the right time. And it wasn't. This feud felt like it barely started... And I get it because even historically there has been war game stuff where it's like, you know, it'll be like the four horsemen versus, you know, the sting squadron or it's like, it's a thrown together team. And you can tell, and the storylines are built that way where it just feels like, 
okay, clearly this is just being thrown together for this match, you know, and stuff like that happens. But this really did feel like you're kind of establishing two stables and it doesn't feel like the pinnacle is just a throwaway stable for the match. And then once this is over, they're going to break up. It feels like there should be more to it. So yeah, you could have established things. You could have done a lot more matches. As I talked about, you've got the two tag teams that really feel like there's still a lot left on the bone there for them to, to feud with each other that you could have like gotten into more before you just have this, which feels like should be the blow off of the feud. Um, so it does feel like you're kind of rushing to this. You have Jericho who still feels like a heel to a lot of the fan base. I think if people are into the online side of things at all, they're not going to just like embrace him completely as a baby face. Like you said, nobody else on the inner circle team really stands out as likable. Um, even Sammy, I think Sammy feels like a guy who's a very reluctant heel or a, a reluctant babyface, a guy that you really would only start to like him as a babyface in like a, a super like sympathetic situation that would need to build over time. So it just felt very rushed to be even getting to this point and nobody was like really presented super strongly. So you do end up uh, kind of, yeah, like feeling like this is i won't say forced but definitely feeling like it's rushed and the part about the melter thing is when you bring something like that up he his like defense is always like well they probably needed to tell this story on tv at this point because it builds into what they're going to do on the pay-per-views and all this and that and it's like i'm sorry but you can't just always write every fucking dumb timing mistake and issue with with aew booking on this idea that like well they always pay it off in the end properly and they always get to where they need to be with the story so clearly it's intentional and this is it's just the next it's the step that needs to lead to the next step and it's like that's not i'm not watching booking meetings on tv i'm not watching like oh well this is the story we're telling you know like i'm watching what's happening and as i watch it this was not the time for this and it felt forced and it didn't make sense when it's happening so i don't really care that like it was part of their booking plan because i mean you know what do they what do they say life is what happens when you're busy making plans i'm sorry but you can't just rush things because you feel like now is the time to do this when it's not really just because you want to get somewhere else in time to tell whatever story for the pay-per-view so yeah i just i think that it's it's really disingenuous to cover up for booking mistakes like this which is like a light mistake but realistically in a lot of ways this should have been bigger and should have felt like a bigger deal it feels like a booking mistake because you you think that you know better about what needs to come at what times next for the story and it's like you know they're they're they had two big gimmick matches in a row and now both of them have kind of felt like the finishes fell flat so now you're getting to a point where you know you're you're showing people that the big gimmick matches don't mean anything and people don't buy into stipulations and gimmicks in general the, you know, the Daniel Bryan versus Roman Reigns career or SmackDown career versus title match didn't draw well on TV. And, you know, the thought process and the reasoning behind is people don't buy into these gimmicks because they don't mean anything. And, you know, when he says he's not going to be on SmackDown anymore, no one believes it. And then that hurts AEW also because there's a history of that these gimmicks don't mean anything. Well, I mean, I'm sorry, but you can't just say like, oh, it's so unfair for AEW because WWE has taught fans to not buy into their gimmicks. It's like... Yeah, well, AEW is also teaching fans that when we say we're going to do these gimmick matches, they might be okay and the storylines might be good, but unfortunately, we're, we've done it two times in a row where the finishes are kind of, eh, they're just kind of whatever. So, 
you know, it, it your your AEW is also like building a bad record of having their gimmick matches not have great payoffs. So, I'm uh, sorry, that was a bit of a diatribe. But Quentin, you have any uh, more thoughts on this? Uh, no, my, my only thought coming out of this match still is, well, what's next for the Pinnacle? And I guess more directly after that, what's next, what's next for MJF? And that was my biggest thought coming out of this is that, well, man, you gave the Pinnacle this big win on TV in the main event in this very in, the, in this big built-up match. What's next? Because maybe while it wasn't a super definitive victory, it still was enough to put over MJF. And in the closing shots, you're still getting images of MJF. So I'm not even sold that this feud between the inner circle and pinnacle even continues in the event that it does. I'm thinking this might transition into more of a thing with MJF versus Sammy Guevara. But if they decide to completely move on from that, I think that something like MJF versus Christian would probably be the thing that I would say makes the most sense coming, coming out of that. But Tim, Tim, what are your thoughts? Are they going to keep going with the pinnacle versus inner circle story? Uh, are, they, are you going to see MJF move on? Are we going to see FTR move on? What, what are you expecting? It's here? really weird, right? Because it feels like MJF has been presented as the next guy for so long that it, it's got to be time to pull the trigger. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like it makes sense right now. You've got Kenny Omega as the champion. You can't really have heel... MJF go up against Kenny Omega. So how how long do you wait till you get to get to that? You've got Darby with the TNT title. I could see doing something with that, but at the same time, that would feel like such a holding pattern that it would almost like cool off MJF. You could do something with Christian. You could also do something with another guy who feels very much in the same weird like time to pull the trigger. And you could do something with Hangman and MJF. Um, setting up to you know maybe building to the hangman kenny omega match um i could definitely i oh. or or um or i could see like say like if you, if you did switch to hangman versus mjf now that could maybe lead to hangman officially joining dark order right yeah he needs a stable to back him up against the pinnacle you put that together and it's official and i do think like i said i think that you end up with you have Hangman win that feud so that he can go on to be the one to win the title from uh, from Omega, and then you eventually get back to MJF versus Hangman again for the title. Right? That To me, that's the way that makes the most sense right now just looking at it on paper. But we've talked about Darby. We've talked about Orange Cassidy, who's about to probably get the, the next big title match, it seems like, makes the most sense from the way that they're telling the story. It's like they've got a lot of guys who also feel like they're ready and it's we're still so early on in, in AEW it's really hard to say what their booking style is like but if there's one thing that we've seen at least long enough it does feel like they slow play it and they kind of pull the trigger a little bit too late and historically i mean we've talked about this it, that in a lot of ways pulling the trigger too late is one of the worst habits you can have as a booker i think that a lot of times you can get you can be better off pulling the trigger a little bit too early and and kind of dealing with booking around that than you are 
from pulling the trigger too late and having like a, the kind of smell of failure on all of your wrestlers by the time they get the title or or at least they're not at their peak and, and the people aren't as invested in them by the time they become the champion it's it's the it's the gabe paradox we've talked about it a ton when it comes to gabe he always pulled the trigger too late and you compare it to like someone like um like his his i guess mentor uh in paul Heyman, who historically at, albeit at times forced would pull the trigger a lot sooner and would put the titles on people before they were like clearly completely ready and a lot of times it it worked out you know like a lot of times the guys would get the belt and then grow into it um or get the belt and then start to really put it together and then a few times did it really ever fail but for the most part you're better off doing it that way i think um so yeah unfortunately up until this point aew has kind of set the tone of of going to it a little bit late you got it like someone like jericho he wins the title at a point no go okay ahead. okay I'll, I'll say I'll, i think that it's hard to say that because like they just have so many guys who have that kind of potential though that like you can apply that kind of kind of statement to like I feel like a bunch of different people on the roster and I feel like someone like a, like a, like a, like a hangman or MJF because of their youth compared to everyone up compared to the other top guys on the roster. I think it's easy to easy to like take like typical pro wrestling logic and be all right. Well, we missed the window there, but in reality, hangman is still kind of in his own world, separate from Kenny Omega and then separate from Cody and MJF still has only had one shot at the AEW title. So it, it feels that way. And that, and that's why it feels like they're in this kind of limbo, but I would still argue that I think that's more so because of just how well they've been able to build certain characters and how much people have been, or how much people have been delivering in these spots, because realistically we're still talking about guys that like, it's not like these guys are failures or anything mjf faced moxley and lost but he had a pay-per-view main event with moxley hangman uh lost and lost in the main event to crown to crown the first aw champion but he was there and he hasn't been in the aw title match since then i i like to me that's what it makes it hard to say oh you waited too long you waited too long because i think that they've only really gotten one shot compared to like you lost, you lost in title matches a few times, and now after the third go-around, the fourth go-around, now we're putting the belt on you. Sure, yeah, and that's why I say it's still too early to say for sure. I'm just, I'm pointing out just with what data sets we have, it right. seems like their, their, their nature is to go a little bit more towards playing it safe and waiting, or not even just waiting, but putting the titles putting the championship pulling the trigger on people who are completely proven and are possibly even like past the peak of their popularity or at least past the point where people really want them to win the title and that is again that's to say nothing is for sure the company is still very new it's just based on what we've seen that seems to be the data set that we have like points towards that because you've got again like i said jericho established Jericho comes into the company and he's already at the level where you can say 
sure, he could be their world champion. It makes sense to go with him, but it also was going with the choice between him and Hangman. It was going with the choice of the guy who is definitely 100% established rather than taking the chance on the guy who's getting there and the fans seem to be behind, but it's not for sure. Then you go into Moxley. It's it's the same thing. Moxley, if anything, you could say was a little bit quicker on pulling the trigger on a guy because he was coming directly from WWE. He wins it relatively quickly, right at the peak of when he's hot, and it was almost perfect timing. But then Omega, it's like from the moment that they started the company, Omega was in the conversation of why isn't he the top star? Why isn't he the champion? And it took him a while to get to it. They finally eventually you know, went there. So it is just historically, which it's a very short history, it just looks like what they do is they hold back and don't go to the flash in the pan or the guy who just happens to be hot right this second and they kind of are willing to slow play it and wait a little bit. And as I said, that's not always the best choice and you can end up kind of wasting opportunities by going with that instead of going with the, you know, maybe not completely proven thing as quickly. Historically, it feels like to me, booking decisions when you go with that as your main kind of way of doing it what you end up doing is waiting too long on everyone and but again we might not end up there but we do we do are now in a situation right now where we have a a bunch of guys who feel like they could easily take that next step and it doesn't it's not necessarily clear who gets there first and then what you do with everybody else and mjf Mm -hmm. even with this big win especially MJF, honestly, with this big win and this big presentation, feels like he's not in a position to now take advantage of this and move to the next level yet. Because again, like I said, the next level for him that would make sense would be the championship, but you're not going to do an MJF Omega feud. So you at least have to deal with that before you can even get to there. So it is like, what do you do next with MJF? You could do a Guevara feud. You could do a Cody Rhodes feud, but Cody feels very busy right now. You could... You know what I mean? There is places after, for him to go, but yeah. After 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 you finish up, cause I think eventually we're gonna get to we're gonna get to a, a Mox and Kingston versus the Bucks tag title match. It's probably might be a Revolution. Pro- well, probably be a Revolution. Yeah, it's gotta be. That's gotta be the next thing they do after the F- SCU match. After that, I think the thing about AEW is that you gotta remember like the kind of matches that they still have fresh. Um, and even though they've had they had a. Like their, their their title their title match, I still think I still think that Mox versus MJF in like a non title capacity is still pretty it's still it's still it's still kind of fresh at that point, or even like if you wanted to after Darby, uh, deal deals with the Scorpio Sky and Ethan Page contingent, would I be mad at seeing Darby versus MJF for uh, feuding over the TNT title for a little bit? I I I think that's what makes this. Interesting, interesting, and concerning at the same time is with AEW. You really don't know wh- like when or where they're going to try to pull a trigger or take someone to that next level. I, I, like you know, right now this Orange Cassidy thing is gonna, it feels like it's coming out of nowhere because Orange Cassidy hasn't been nearly as prominent as he was during, say, Cody's TNT title run. And now he's gonna face Pat. Now he's gonna face Pack this week on 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 Dynamite, and presumably based off the promo segment with Kenny, Orange Cassidy's probably gonna win that. And so you're gonna have Orange Cassidy versus Kenny at uh at what a double or nothing. Yeah, I think um actually 
I think it's double or nothing. Or right? is it going to be at Revolution? Whoever wins between no, Pac and and Orange are going to get the I, I, next. I, I think. I, I think revolution. I think revolution already happened. So I think it's. I think there's double or nothing. Um, okay. So either either way, we're getting we're like presumably gonna get Kenny Omega versus Orange Cassidy. Like again, a month ago, two months ago, did it even make sense for Orange Cassidy to be in that position? Not like not really. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Okay. So double or nothing is in May. Um, yeah. At the end of the month. So yeah, that would be it, and it'll probably be Orange Cassidy and and Omega at that. Um, which will be interesting because we haven't really gotten a big Orange Cassidy singles main event on a pay-per-view um, as, like, the main thing. So, I don't know. <laughs> Would it be crazy for them to put the title on him there? I mean, he's not going to win it, but... Yeah. Um, but, but but more so the point is, is that even a month ago, two months ago, you would have never thought about Cassidy being in that position, like, even a few weeks ago. And now right. suddenly, because Hangman lost to lost to uh, lost to Cage, you remember Hangman Hangman was the number one contender, and because of that loss, then it becomes Pack versus Orange Cassidy, and it's like, oh, okay, I thought we were building up to Hangman versus Kenny, and Hangman's gonna have his moment, and they throw a wrench in there, you know, you you're kind of thinking, oh, Hangman Hangman's gonna win here and that's gonna be a really good win for him go heading into this kenny title match or whatever and aw throws a throws a complete wrench in that and now you're facing orange cassidy versus kenny and i think that's what makes aew again can be a little frustrating can be a little weird but i think that's what keep, keeps aew interesting because they'll do something like this to completely throw you off but in the meanwhile Hangman Page is still having his own story told, and eventually he's going to have a big match and a big moment. It is true, and it's it's funny because I heard people even like complaining about the the rankings and the and the numbers and the win loss records and how oh they don't like kind of like people still complain about it both ways. People there's some people that will say like oh they don't stick to it, and then there's other people who are like I don't want to see you know these numbers and. I'm not watching the, like, you, you know, why is Britt Baker not in contention? And then she loses a match. And then out of nowhere, she's the number one contender because, you know, I don't, I don't care that she's winning matches on dark. You know what I mean? People say stuff like that and this and that. But, but the thing is that these records, this is a great example of how AEW uses the records ex expertly. And it's like a thing that gets overlooked by a lot of people when they talk about it is like you just said, they were able to, um, they, they were able to basically get Paige out of the championship contender competition like he should be. Um, but also at the same time, he only lost one match. So it wasn't like he had to do a bunch of losses um, to like to get to there. He just lost one match and then, okay, we can uh, we can like move to this other story that, like you said, feels like it came out of nowhere. So that is like kind of a a. a a good side of using the records that they did there. Anything else on the on the AEW front here? Like I said, I think MJF is in a weird spot. Like I wouldn't mind MJF versus Christian. Um, MJF versus yeah. Sammy makes sense, but like, yeah, again, like I really don't know where this goes from here. Even FTR, who I feel like should like got themselves in a better spot after this match and how and how good they've looked 
I feel like with the Bucks as heel champs, what's next for them? Do they, you know, what is there a face tag team that they should be looking for? Hey, you know what? Perfect. FTR versus Mox and Kingston. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, sure. There's like a lot left, and and as we both have kind of said. Everything is still so new that there's a lot left on the table, and there's a lot of unpredictability, which is kind of nice to not necessarily feel like you know the patterns so well that you can definitely predict where they're going to go and what's happening. All right, are you ready to get, are you ready to get into yeah, yeah. Beyond, beyond, uh, beyond Project Reality and the uh, IWT, IWTV title match on that yes. show? Yes. I was going to say, you mentioned before, I think before we started recording, like other AEW thoughts, and there's a lot of other stuff swirling around, but there's not much that I care to talk about otherwise, so for sure, I'm ready to move on to Beyond uh, Project Reality in the main event. Uh, Did you watch much else from this show? I did not. Was anything else good on here? Um... So, I did not check out the Matt Mikowski stuff. I would definitely probably want to before I would say for sure, like, anything about that. Um, so, yeah, there's there was that. Um, Dickinson versus Teddy Goods. I don't know if you're familiar with Teddy Goods, but he's been around forever. He was a, he was the Biff Busick's buddy that he did a podcast with. He's a New England wrestler who's been, like I said, around forever. He's, he's decent, solid. The match was fine, but it was like your low-level Dickinson kind of in-beyond match, not like any of his really good matches. I don't know if you've been watching him at all in New Japan Strong where he's like actually trying or or the kind of stuff that you see from him in uh, Bloodsport. You know, it's, it was nothing like that. It was kind of Dickinson. Alex Price versus Edith Surreal. Um, Alex Price is a guy I've been seeing him on Limitless, younger, kind of on the bottom, but he has a nice intensity, um, aggression, and energy that's interesting. I would definitely say give him, you give that match a watch, give him a, a check out if you haven't been paying attention to Alex Price. Um, and then I wanted to watch, um, Kimberly versus Masha Slamovich because I have started to become a fan of Masha Slamovich. I thought that she was kind of a joke thing. Um, but her match with Sienna, uh, Allison K, I always get confused because she goes with like the AK 47 thing. And I always expect her name to be more because of like Kaylee Ray, whatever. Um, Allison K. Uh, versus Masa Slamovich from the Bloodsport match was really good. And then the Edith Surreal, even though it was like a Soviet street fight or whatever that was like fucking dumb. And the and the, the commentator, the commentary was atrocious. I was like really enjoyed her her in that match. And then like the build up video that they showed before to like build the feud up between Edith Surreal and Masha Slamovich. And the match with Kimberly was really good too. So I would definitely recommend that. Um, Kimberly obviously has not wrestled a ton recently i mean no one has um but would like to see her get a little bit more and kind of get back to where she was before she signed to wwe because she was having really good matches and this was a nice kind of beefier kind of brawling women's match um really solid uh so yeah i would definitely recommend those and then that was it but uh the main event (laughs) the big big deal that everyone's talking about quentin wheeler yuda versus lee moriarty did not expect the outcome um iwtv championship on the line what did you think on the match front i think the first 30 minutes are really good um in total i think i think it's in in totality i think it's a very good match the beginning work from both wheeler and moriarty i think is breezy it makes the time fly by 
I think that Wheeler, especially throwing in little heel antics and tricks, I think I think makes it especially entertaining. And Lee's mat Lee's mat work is always really really fun to watch. The selling the selling that they then add in adds an adds another, adds another level of interest and, and excitement to it. Again, with these kinds of guys who are still younger, newer, you know, uh, maybe less so in the case of Wheeler, but both of these guys are still 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 on the young, younger, maybe lesser experienced side, going out there and going fifty three minutes. Eventually, they're gonna run out of ideas unless you're Trevor Lee, you know, and you're a, and you're a prodigy at. 20 years old wrestling hour-long matches and no ropes matches, you know, you're going to have a hard time filling all of that space. But if this was condensed in a little bit tighter and maybe kept to like that 25, 30 range, I think this might be what might probably be the best U.S. indie match that we've had in a while. But it goes 53 minutes it loses me. It loses me a little bit down the stretch. I think neither guy really has enough impactful offense down uh, in the last portion of this to keep me as engaged. But it's still very good for the most for the most part. And like I said, if this was cut down to a thirty minute match, this might be one of the best matches of the year. Yeah, I I'm with you on that. I think the background between these guys the story the build everything that they did there some of which i was not even completely like i didn't really remember all of it until i'm watching and the commentary is helping tell the story and i'm looking some stuff up knowing that i didn't realize that this was the finals of the masked wrestler you know that was something that like oh shit okay and the masked wrestler thing was how lee won the title so there's like the background and the connection between the two that goes with that. The The commentary even takes the time to point out like Yuta feels like overlooked because maybe there was a time period when, you know, he was more respected or people kind of talked about him as like the next big thing when he was wearing a mask and they don't, uh, they, people haven't really given him the same credit as Wheeler Yuta that he was getting at that time. So there was like little details like that. There's Wheeler Yuta... Um, being in the GUR here in Beyond because they're in Beyond and Lee Moriarty wasn't, right? So it's like Yuta in a weird way has like a home court here in this in this promotion he's he's been established even if he didn't win the the GUR he, uh, he's part of the top mix of guys in Beyond and, and Moriarty isn't but he's, you know, the IWTV champion coming in here but Moriarty is getting big shots all around. People are calling him the best wrestler in the world. So there was a lot of good stuff there to build to this to where if I had known all that, if I was invested in all of that, then this would have felt like a big match and maybe wouldn't have been surprising when I then hear Yuta won the title. Because, <laughs> you know, obviously I went into this spoiled. I didn't watch it live, and then I just heard people saying, like, oh, fuck, you, you know, they went really long, and Yuta won. And that was, like, shocking. But then you get into it, and the presentation in the background, it's like, oh, okay, kind of makes sense. I wish that I had felt that way before the match was started. <laughs> I wish that I had felt that way before I watched the match, because I would have maybe gone out of my way to try to watch it live and think it was a big deal. 
you know, because it would have, oh, okay, this is a big deal. But it didn't feel like it was presented that way at all until you're actually watching it. And like I said, I had to, like, poke around and look into stuff to, like, really put it all together. So, unfortunately, that's just the disparate nature of indie wrestling right now. Not even just right now, but also, you know, COVID-era wrestling. The storytelling is, is really spread out because there's been time in between stuff. The stuff that just doesn't make any sense unless you, like, you know, remember things from like almost a year ago all that kind of stuff so that said you talked about trevor lee and it's a good comparison point and the major difference is that trevor lee would do those long matches and he the story that he told in the match facilitated the 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 length trevor lee really i mean most of those long ass matches had a lot of other stuff going on that was part of the story and the reason why the match went so long this just didn't this match felt like it went long as a gimmick it felt like it was the point was to get maybe it it, it, it grabs attention like yeah like like, like, let's call it what it is it is not a bad thing like i think that especially in the landscape that we're in now with u.s indie wrestling that this was almost necessary i mean shit the last match that got any attention was what the fred yehi versus jeremy wyatt match that went 60 minutes yep you have to do shit like this at this point in order to in order to grab any kind of attention for this scene, it feels like. Um, so from that standpoint, I understand it. Uh, I think that also it does a good job of making me want to see the next match, if there is one. Obviously, that makes me want to see another Lee Moriarty versus Wheeler Yuta match, which, on paper, as because I wasn't watching this live, that. Wow, Lee Moriarty and Wheeler Yuta went 53 minutes. That's kind of weird. And oh, Wheeler Yuta won. That's even stranger. Okay. But then I watched the match and I watched how it played out and how much I enjoyed it. It's like, oh, I'd like to, I'd like to see this again. So, yeah, it goes for a for an atten- for an attention grabbing thing. Out of nowhere, this match is going 53 53 minutes, and no one would have been inclined to think that or believe that going into it but here we are and i gotta say that it did its job and it made me more interested to see where this thing is gonna go and if they're gonna do another wheeler yuda versus lee moriarty match yeah definitely like like i was saying there's there's enough background here to where it felt like it could have been presented as a bigger deal but again, it almost does feel like, in some ways, a setup match where you could, you're starting a story that you're going to now continue on, and that wouldn't be shocking. I think that you could go to the rematches, maybe you know, even a couple times with this now because you've you've gotten people interested. The problem is like something like the Joe versus Punk series, right, where you start out long and then all you do is just go longer, and I think that that is that's kind of a mistake. Uh, especially now i don't think that 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 should be their their plan and i do think that like they should do maybe something more like um i was trying to remember the skillogy if the second match was relatively short i feel like it was right um uh, short was yeah uh, yeah yeah still like still i mean yeah i think it's still on the short. shortest side yeah relatively yeah. yeah yeah where it's like you do the long match and then the next one goes quick and then the third one, you can do whatever with it. Like, that's your choice. But you don't just get into this, like, competition of just making the matches go longer and longer. 
Um, especially, like I said, when you're here, this match didn't need to be this long. This match didn't have a long story to tell. This match went long, again, just to get attention. Now you've got people's attention. You've got two of the better wrestlers on the indies, for sure. Um, but the real thing is, like, the limitations of these guys. And I hate to say it, but Lee Moriarty as a babyface is good, but Yuta is not the right heel for him. Yuta is uh, still... You think that Yuta was, was able to get a lot out of, like, a compelling babyface sell from, from Moriarty here? No, I, I would say that I think Wheeler was the one... I'll, I'll, well, I, okay. I think Wheeler is the one that made the match the most interesting. Um, sure. To me, it then felt like Lee and the other and the, and the things that Lee is good at are very entertaining and are good to and are, and are cool and interesting to watch play out because he has a good grasp of those things. But over the course of a longer match, um, though like those like those things that maybe aren't Lee's strong suits, like diversity and like the kind of moves that he may be he may be able to pull out or. Any, anything like that. Not even like throwing bombs, but adding more uh, stuff in terms of his map work or pin combinations or the or the way he uh, or having like having like a, having a signature spot or anything. It feels like that kind of stuff is lacking. And maybe in that respect, Wheeler Yuta isn't the guy to get the most out of a babyface Lee Moriarty because yes. Wheeler Yuta isn't going to like bully him and like force him to show some fire the way that like Alex Shelley might right but Alex Shelley's also been wrestling for 20 years or going sure. on 20 years sure. we're talking about we're, we're, talking, yeah. we're talking we're talking about go ahead oh no I, I go ahead I was saying like we're talking about like Wheeler Yuta here who's probably been around if not for the same amount of time for like not that much longer than, than, Lee, than Lee Moriarty. And he's being asked in a newer role for Wheeler Yuta as well to be this leading commanding force and to get this extra personality and extra fire out of Lee Moriarty. And while I think Wheeler is really good in this match, yeah, that's kind of like a difficult ask for somebody at this point in time. Yeah. No, it, that's exactly my point there was that Yuta is a new new to being a heel he's got some interesting cutoff spots and things that he does in here like you said he had a lot of really cool things that i enjoyed seeing from him he had some you know some tricks and some shortcuts and some cheap shots that were like very fun yeah these guys both started wrestling around 2015 so they're actually pretty close to the same amount of uh experience you just kind of have seen yuda around more if you haven't been paying attention to aiw um and also just in general, really. Um, but yeah, so Yuta had some neat stuff that he did that I really enjoyed. And Yuta is an okay heel, but I think a much better babyface even still to this to this point. Um, and my point is like exactly what you kind of picked up on there was not that Yuta is a bad heel. And not even that Moriarty is a bad babyface. But that Yuta was not the heel to get the, the best from... Moriarty, the underdog fighting from the bottom stuff, really kind of making him earn everything, really kind of setting him up to just hit a couple good spots. Like, as the heel, you have to 
pace the match and make sure that the babyface doesn't get out of their their depth. And that's really fucking tough situation. This match is going way too long for both of these guys, especially for like what they have. And unfortunately, Yuta is just like, yeah, like giving Moriarty a little bit more rope than he needs, and he's basically letting him kind of hang himself because Moriarty showed me not a lot here, and you can you can do this, you can be you can work with what Moriarty has and do a long match like this and still make it work. But unfortunately, he he really didn't. So he goes to his holds and he does some interesting stuff. And you talked about like variety of depth of of what his his offense was, and that wasn't even the issue. The, the, the issue is that he didn't. He didn't take stuff and actually work it. He kind of took spots, like work it in a long way, like take a hold and work it so it takes up time, but it's still engaging. He kind of took stuff and he just kind of stretched it out by just doing things slowly and right, by like right, but at doing the same stuff, time, oh, like, repeating it, you know? Go ahead. Right. And I think like someone that's like a pretty good comp for the way Lee wrestles and Lee does like a little bit more flying and all that kind of stuff, but a good comp is, is Zach. And... Zach makes up for that because Zach is in general like a really good mat wrestler. Zach's whole thing doesn't have to be holds. Zach can do like amateur stuff with you for with someone for a little bit if need be, and then go into the working of holds. And again, while I, while Wheeler in Lee did some of that, it just wasn't as good. And I feel like if that's gonna be Lee's style, then some honing some honing in on that. Uh, should be the next step there. And, and Lee's a really good seller. Um, he's a really he's a really good lim- he's a really good limb seller. So, I think the, like like what you're getting at some of the connective um connective tissue there that uh might not that, that might that might be lacking then comes from how he's executing his offense. And then that be you know that would be a good like a good spot for someone like a Jeremy Wyatt, right? A Jeremy Wyatt versus Lee Moriarty in this in the, in this situation. Jeremy Wyatt knows how much to give, knows how much to take, knows cutoffs, knows when he should start begging off and making someone else look good and give them their shine. And he's proven that he can do that over the course of big matches, long matches as well. But again, that's someone that's a veteran hand that's been around for however long. And when you're throwing the throwing these two guys out here who aren't rookies, I don't I don't want to make it seem like they're rookie guys, but guys who are now almost un, the unquestioned elder statesmen of a scene, and they're and they've only been wrestling for five or six for five or six years um, a piece, that does that do, that does create for for a for a match in a scene where no. No, neither of them really understand how to lead somebody into a in a match that's going fifty three minutes. None of no, neither of them are really cut out for that. Which again, I don't want to make it seem like it's this big detraction here. I, we're just engaging in critical thought when it comes when it comes to this match. I already said that this was cut down another tw- another twenty or so minutes. This might be one of the best matches of the year, and I do firmly believe that. But. It is it is worth it is worth talking about seeing how that other twenty three minutes it does lose me and it's lo- and it does and it loses me for the reasons that we're listing right now. 
talked about comparing it to Zach and, and the experience level. These guys aren't rookies, but they've both been wrestling about five years. As I said, they both started around 2015, probably started getting more and more bookings and showing up more places in 2016. Okay, compare that to Zack Sabre Jr., who, by the yeah. time Zack Sabre Jr. showed up in PWG, had been wrestling for over 10 years. And five of those years were wrestling directly with Yoshinori Ogawa in NOAA, getting training to be understand like how to wrestle he had already had started to have a legendary you know feud and rivalry with walter like by the time zack saber jr shows up in pwg again wrestling over 10 years and people think that he was an overnight sensation that no one had heard of at that point and quickly becomes the biggest name in all of wrestling tours the world everyone's talking about everything he's doing compare that to where lee moriarty is right now He's been wrestling for about five years, and the biggest thing that he has to date is a rivalry with Alex Shelley. <laughs> you know, like, it's just not the same. It's just not the same. And these guys are, unfortunately, being positioned at that level right now as being the guys. And this was a conversation where I talked about the Meltzer brain thing. Like, modern wrestling, especially modern indie wrestling, unfortunately has the Meltzer brain hit the numbers thing. These guys hit their spots, do their moves, and the stuff is phenomenal there. But the storytelling, the investment, all of that stuff is just unfortunately not there. And and again, you talked about comparing it to Jeremy Wyatt, being able to, to make the stuff mean something, the stuff on the mat, the, the working for stuff. Like A lot of this stuff was instead of, again, instead of telling me a story that made sense and why this match was taking so long, what you did was you just did the same stuff that you would normally do, but you just like did it a little bit longer, stretched it out, or you did it like a couple extra times instead of like really building and giving me drama. But there is some great stuff here. The selling stuff from Moriarty was phenomenal. The leg selling, the 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 desperation to break free from holds, the attacking of the hand stuff that they did, the big there's a couple big bumps that are really like safe but cool and interesting. Like a lot of great stuff. And even the storytelling for the finish was phenomenal. I referenced it. I talked about it in the Slack where I said, oh, I'm, I'm happy to see Moriarty get the win with the, the cross leg kind of a tombstone position where you cross the legs and pull it down. I didn't even fucking know that's a more that was a Yuta move. And that was a reference to Yuta. Like when he won that match, I saw the match against Starboy Charlie in first wrestling. Moriarty wins the match with that hold. I didn't know that that was Yuta's hold. In this match, he goes for it again here, and they even bring that up. Hey, he beat Starboard Charlie with this. This is Yuta's move. This is the U-lock. I didn't even know that. But again, that's like a story that's being told there. And it's something that I should have picked up on. I remembered seeing it. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that was cool. And I know that he's been using it. But I didn't know that it was a reference to these guys and their issues with each other. So you're starting to build a rivalry here. And again, as we both talked about, there's something here. There's interesting stuff. They're telling me stories. I'm just not fully invested yet. And I feel like you went to the hour-long match as the first step in getting me invested in the story I, I of the think, rivalry between these two. I, I kind of I like that, though, because I, I, I think it's interesting to try to tell a story like that out of, out of order. Because, I mean, I don't think that they're going to try to top this and go fucking 80 or 90. <laughs> you know, like I, like I think that like the goal here is then they're going to have a shorter match. But... I do like I do like this idea of trying to tell that story in reverse, and I think it gives the IWTV title some much needed depth because coming out of the Warhorse reign, where I get it, Warhorse was a guy that could travel all over the place, popular, cool act, and um, 
someone that you could just plug in anywhere. But I feel did, but I feel like didn't necessarily equate to good matches or the kind of matches that will get IWTV's uh, title any any kind of attention. I feel like this Warhorse was. Oh, sorry. Warhorse was a guy that I think like was a on paper respected guy. I think that the the feud with him and Gary J was like talked about and lauded as being very good. There was a lot of good matches there, and I think that people who didn't see that but heard about it were like, oh, okay, he's good. He had good matches, and then he would show up and he's like this entertaining character. So he was kind of a perfect champion in that regard, as you said, because he like had some credibility and then he would show up and be entertaining and you could yeah you could just pop him in somewhere and the crowd's gonna pop for him because they they find him entertaining so he was he was he was a good champion and i think that people maybe shit on him a little bit more than he deserves but yeah he was he was definitely very good for the iwtv brand as a whole but sorry for interrupting you yeah i think that war that warhorse and coming out of that reign that let's be honest i think that people associated with, I, uh, with iwtv like could be you no, know, I think to honestly answer this that yeah, Warhorse was fun and everything, and not to dis- diminish him, but what are the Warhorse matches that led to any? Oh my God, Warhorse versus fucking whoever was really good, and you need to go out of your way to see that. It 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 doesn't exist, and I think that now returning to the people that you know that had that had the matches that got the attention, like the. Jonathan, the Jonathan Gresham, the Tracy Williams, the Orange Cassidy, that kind of stuff. I think that that's better for IWTV uh, going forward because Warhorse was someone that made sense for the wrestling landscape as it was last year or a year and a half ago or two years ago or whatever. I feel like for right now in indie wrestling, it can't be something like that. It has to be something that's eye-catching and eye-grabbing and like how C- like CWF Mid-Atlantic when they started doing that I don't think it was intentional when it, when it, because it started when it started getting the attention from people like Dustin Spencer and Dylan Hales and eventually the Wrestling With Words people I don't think it was intentional we know that because of what, pe- what people from CWF have like directly said to us <laughs> like like yes like with IWTV I think that should be the intention I think that this should be an intentional thing going forward because otherwise going forward with this wrestling landscape as it is, a warhorse kind of thing is just not going to work. We need someone or people that, hey, here's this touring rivalry or, or here's uh, Lee Moriarty has wrestled three straight 40-minute matches uh, and is... IWTV, IWTV title defenses and fatigue must be catching up to him. Can he can he outlast fucking JD Drake? Like like some like something like that. But going to the safe, gimmicky, making sense for the current uh meme, uh ironic wrestling landscape kind of thing, it just does I don't think it's gonna work for them anymore. No, and I do like that they're getting to it now and Again, the whole fucking world is weird because of because of COVID. And it's really hard to say what timing means and what's going on with the landscape and all of that. But it is probably smart for them to switch earlier than later away from the meme thing and go to IWTV Championship is the serious wrestling title. And Warhorse was kind of a meme wrestler champion for sure. But I do think that, like again, like I said, he had that credibility... 
at least that people knew of him from an epic feud that was talked about as being phenomenal. And it, and it was, there was some really cool shit that happened there. I mean, him getting his face ripped open by that fucking turnbuckle did wonders for his career as shitty as it probably was at the time. Um, it definitely gave him some credibility and made it so that people took him seriously as a wrestler. He had some great matches with Gary J and then he turned into a meme wrestler off of the back of that. And I think that people kind of overlooked that in some ways, like people talk about him as a meme wrestler, but you know, people talk about the meme wrestling and, you know, Effie and Alley Cat and all of the bullshit. Um, Dan Housen, obviously. But uh, Warhorse got off a little bit easy on that because he did have some of that credibility from that background to him as well. Um, but that said, it was it, it, it feels like that's dying. It feels like that's dead. People are not into the meme thing. People are really latching back at it. So the idea that the IWTV title switches from that, like at what feels like the perfect time and then you move forward to something like this that can feel like a rivalry that means something but the hard thing is is that like the meme thing draws and the meme thing works and talked about it but warhorse is a guy that will show up on the show and the crowd will get into him because he's got his gimmick and his whole thing and people see it and they get it instantly and they're they're into it and i don't know that either of these guys are that yet i think that unfortunately lee moriarty is at a weird place where it's like this is how it works with Lee Moriarty. Either you have no fucking clue who he is and you've never heard of him, or you're one of a handful of insane people who say he's hands down the greatest wrestler in the world. And that's like where yeah. he's at. <laughs> that's like the level that he is at right now. And it's fucking weird. And it sucks because it's not like a guy who can show up anywhere as the champion and draw. But if you can build up a rivalry between these two guys who both maybe don't have a ton of star power but you make it into a legendary feud and it goes around and it becomes something then yeah i think you can make this into something like think about the the seven layers of hell thing colt gabana and um and scrap daddy adam pierce like feuding over the nwa title and turning that into something but you do that with these guys i think that you can do something even bigger you know and something that maybe gets a little bit more mainstream attention you know we're talking about indie wrestling so mainstream attention doesn't mean much and then at the same or time, even, oh, or, or, or even, or even, or, or even something in the vein of like a, like a, um, like a Alex Shelley versus Jimmy Jacobs. Yeah, you know, just ha- just having just having these two guys and being like, okay, we see talent in both of these guys. These are head and shoulders of the new guys that are coming in. The these are the best two. Uh, sort of came up together. We're gonna we're gonna put them out there, and they're gonna oh like oh shit, they really killed it this time, and just keep going with it for months and obviously wheeler and moriarty come from different backgrounds wheeler was uh uh northeast guy and lee moriarty and lee moriarty's from pennsylvania and then you know by proxies over there working aiw like I, they're, they're, they're like it's diff- it's different but i think that same kind of uh principle could apply here that you're talking about but also this isn't ju- this isn't just establishing IWTV in their in the uh, in their belt, but yeah, establish Lee Moriarty, establish Wheeler Yuta, yeah, establish these two guys because the reality is is that that's all they have. They have to establish each other. That's what the Indies have to do at this point. Everyone has to establish each other. A Chris Hero, a Zack Saber Jr., a Matt a Matt Riddle, a Jonathan Gresham, um, uh, fucking whoever else from when we had uh plethora of guys a johnny gargano a, a roderick strong a drew gulak 
isn't come isn't coming out to come make these guys. They gotta make each other. So, with me understanding that, I'm willing to give IWTV and all these guys more leeway if they want to run the if they want to run these long matches. It might not be the most the thing I'm I'm looking uh, most forward to watching, but I do think it's almost a necessary thing because they they need these guys. They need the Lee Moriarty, the Daniel Garcia, the Wheeler Yuta, the Matt Mikowski, and those guys to build each other up if we if we want this thing to eventually get to a healthy place. Yeah, I mean. Wrestling is, it's trying to heal, right? Nature is healing itself. Wrestling, it's healing itself. Unfortunately, we've had a um, a really, really dark period. Even before, again, I just, I keep bringing this up and I hate to do it, but like the, you know, the pandemic really fucked everything up, but we were already entering a dark period beforehand. It's kind of like the economy here in America. They said that we were basically starting to enter a recession before the pandemic hit. And luckily, it kind of got covered up by the pandemic. People people kind of didn't realize that basically our recession was the pandemic. We were going to hit it anyways. And then, luckily, because we were in a pandemic, people were willing to... Um, not people. <laughs> I hate to call them people, but <laughs> the government. <laughs> you know, hate to call Joe Biden a person. Um, they, like, actually <laughs> injected some cash to fucking help people out because they, like, had a, you know, a universally accepted insane fucking situation that had to be dealt with at least in some way you couldn't just pretend like it didn't exist um so they had to do something so in some ways that stimulus and the money that was given to people covered up for the recession that was coming anyways and it's kind of a similar thing unfortunately with pro wrestling we were hitting a down period because every single bit of decent talent had gotten signed um and we're leaving you know indie wrestling and the wrestling scene in general and we were kind of going to hit a downturn anyways and then the pandemic hit and there was no wrestling happening um so we're coming out of that now and we were kind of propped up by the idea that uh you know oh the reason my new japan is bad is because they don't have crowds you know they don't have any fans wrestling without fans is, is not good and you know aew was like fine wwe was wwe you know it was bad but it had some matches here and there and uh now we're coming out of it and it's like okay what do we need to do we need to rebuild and, and the way to rebuild is yeah like guys like this Daniel Garcia, um, you know, Kevin Koo, pretty much everyone in action and sup, all the, all the, all the guys that are doing some great work there and limitless wrestling. And those are like the three, you know, beyond is the elder statesman of the Indies right now, basically. Um, but you've got like four indie promotions that exist that are doing anything worth watching. You've got GCW, which is like a fucking bane on, on the entire like wrestling community. It's fucking terrible. Like, really, really, it's just so fucking bad that they are, a lot of people consider them to be the top indie wrestling promotion. Um, and then you've got uh, New Japan, which we're going to talk about here in a bit, who, um, I don't, I have no fucking clue what they're doing. But uh, are you ready to talk some New Japan, Quentin? Yeah, I guess, man. <laughs> <laughs> what did you watch from the first night of Wrestling Dontaku? Look, I watched... <laughs> Jay White versus Tanahashi. That was it. And I watch Osprey versus Shingo. Beautiful. I do not give a fuck about anything else Can't blame you. that they have going on over there. Cannot blame you. Zack Sabre Jr. versus Tangaloa was fine. It was, you know, watchable. It was very long, but both those guys are good. I think it's very, it's really funny to me to hear 
the way people talk about Tangaloa, um, because it just, it's so obvious that they just did not pay attention to him at all. But like, he was a fine wrestler when he was in WWE. Like, I'm not saying he was good, but he was not like terrible, you know? But people just like assumed that because he was Tamatanga's brother and he was coming into New Japan because his brother was there, that he must be bad. And then now, anytime I think, I, oh, go I, ahead. I, I think there's this thing. There's always this thing where something just can't be fine, right? Or inoffensive. It has to be either good or bad, and that's the kind of space that Tama and Tangaloa occupy, where they're they're fine. Like I I use the I think the word bad apply like apply gets used very uh very freely very freely and loosely. But yeah, I, I would I would never I would never describe Tama or uh or Tangaloa as bad wrestlers. I think right. that they're as inoffensive as inoffensive gets. Yeah. I mean Tama's got his issues with his personality being annoying. And I can definitely see why people are not invested in him because that he they, he he's just annoying, you know. Like that's okay, whatever. But but Tonga Tonga Loa, like people people like act like they expect him to be dog shit, and then he has like a decent match with Zack Saber Junior. And they're like, oh yeah, I, you know, it actually turns out he's he's much better than Tama Tonga, and, and you know, I, it's it's, it's <laughs> and I'm like, okay, when he was in a tag team with like fucking Hunako with a. Fake or fake Sinkara, not Sinkara. Um, Mystico. What's Sinkara? Yeah. No, no, he was. Uh, oh, he was also fake Sinkara, wasn't he? Yes, I forgot. Um, but yeah, like when he was like uh, in a tag team with him, he was like fine. He was on WWE TV for fucking years in a tag team, and people just like do not remember that that was him. I guess. Um, where because like no one ever was like, oh, these guys are fucking terrible. Everyone was always just like, yeah, you know, they have tag team matches. They're kind of stuck in the middle of the card. I think people probably confuse them with um, with uh, the Cologne brothers. You know what I mean? Like, it's, oh, yeah, it's all this, it's all the same guys. They were all tag teams for, like, decades in WWE mid-card doing jack shit. And, you know, decent, fine match. It was 15 minutes, you know, good. The latter match was, I don't want to say atrocious, but it was goofy. It was just, yeah, I would... It was fucking bad, I'll just say it. Like, the, the, the latter match with Taichi and, and Tamatango was just... It was goofy and, and annoying and too long and the storyline is stupid, but whatever. The main event, Jay White, Tanahashi, never open weight title that's for some reason is the IC title now. Um, for no no apparent reason. None of this the title because shuffle makes we, no sense. Because because we uh because we unified the two titles, so now the never title right. is just the ice the IC title. Yeah. No. <laughs> there was this title shuffle that was completely unnecessary. Like there was no reason. Totally, totally unnecessary. No. Could have broke the belts up at any time they wanted to. Yeah. Just decided not to. If you wanted to get rid of a title, you could have just not like unified those titles and just gotten rid of the never title. Would have probably made more sense. But whatever, that's fine. That's I mean I guess. So, anyways, the Never title now, the title that was initially created to be, like, the NXT title for New Japan, um, but for some reason the first champion was Masato Tanaka. Um, that was a weird wrinkle about and this the, title. But, but, but then, like, but the, and then eventually the Never just, like, adopts its own style right. and structure of a match, which made it cool, and then 
you know, Shingo versus Tanahashi. He's like, oh, okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> so now this is just look. The, yeah. I love Jay White and Tanahashi together. I think that their best stuff has been phenomenal. That uh, one match, I think, I think it was the show, um, in Sumo Hall, uh. The, the the best of super junior show shoot in sumo oh, hall yes, that yeah, had them yeah. there and like that was like amazing i, I really like their i really like the title match where where jay wins the title i really like their king of pro wrestling match they uh, well their their ab match from uh earlier this <laughs> yeah. year was, in the new japan cup yeah. it was really good look this match was strangely structured it Really didn't make a lot of sense the way the way that this entire thing was laid out. If I'm perf- if I'm per- if I'm perfectly honest, I don't think it did good for anybody. I don't think. I mean, look, fundamentally, Tanahashi's selling was good. Jay White was good, and everything along those lines. But I think this thing completely lacked structure, and even with the selling down the stretch and how good Tanahashi was as a sympathetic figure and the way he's fighting off Jay and Jay uh, hitting the Blade Runner out of nowhere. I don't think that really did anything for anybody. I don't think that Jay struggling so much to beat Tanahashi there. I don't think that Tanahashi losing to Jay the way that he did. I don't think the structure of the match where you got Tanahashi in like a pretty extended control segment, and granted the match goes like 40 minutes, but still, it was a pretty commanding control segment from, from Tanahashi on Jay White. And I don't know. I thought this thing was weirdly laid out and weirdly structured. And there's bits about it that are good. But overall, just a really confusing match and disappointing because I love this pairing. I think this pairing could do great special things sometimes. But I thought that the layout of this one was really odd. Yeah, this was... This match did nothing for no one. You know, this was a status quo match, as you talked about there. And it sucks because you've got two guys who have really good chemistry with each other and can have, like, a history of, like, having great ma- only great matches with each other. But they were in a weird position. Oh, here's another news story, right? Like, seven, seven more wrestlers in New Japan have COVID. Oh, yeah, yeah, Two yeah, wrestlers yeah, yeah. got COVID, and that's why this card had to get completely shuffled. Um, but it wasn't just two wrestlers got pulled from the show. Two wrestlers got COVID, and then they pulled everyone from a, from a tag team match, which was probably really smart because then they find you find out that it's spread. So who knows how many people that have it now were from that match or from whatever. Um, but so the story of this night was, as I said, like the, the Zack Sabre Jr. Tangaloa match went really long. This match went really long. The latter match went really long. Like, they all went kind of long and kind of, like, did whatever. Um, But, like, there was some cool stuff here. There's some stuff here that, like, again, it shows, like, just how great Tanahashi is. Like, I talked about the stuff with uh, Moriarty and Yuta. Like, the way that Tanahashi worked the the full Nelson in this match was the kind of stuff that I'm talking about where it's, like, how to work stuff to make it go long. But it's not just boring. Like, they, they were working. They were, like, actually, like, telling a story with the hold and why it was taking long because there was struggle and they were fighting back and forth, you know? And that, that's how you make that stuff, like, take time, but it's not just, you're just doing it longer, you know? Like, you're not just, like, 
making faces. You're like actually working. And that was the kind of stuff here. The reverse figure fours and the selling and the rolling around and the struggle back and forth. Like there was a lot of great stuff here, but it was just like a match that was a treadmill. And again, that has to do with the unfortunate situation. And you know, what are you going to do? Like people were in a fucking bad time. We're in a very, very bad time. And, but at the same time, you judge wrestling and you judge things based on what happens. And yeah, this was a status quo match that felt like at the end of the day, it did nothing for no one. And that's fucking crazy for a match that has a title change. You shouldn't have a title change in a match that feels like at the end of the day did nothing, but that was where we were. The structure was weird. I don't feel like I came out of this with any real hierarchy shift or importance shift or anything that, that mattered. We just had, you went out there for 40 minutes and you had two guys who have really great chemistry with each other just kind of waste time. And, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot worse things that you can do in wrestling, I guess. I was, you know, you want to be like hyperbolic and be like, this is the worst. The worst thing you can do is be boring, right? And people love to say that shit like that. And it's like, no, fuck, fuck that. If they had a 40-minute bad match, that would be much worse than this just, than what this was. But what they had was a 40-minute match that... At the end of the day, it was like, it was, you know, air just going through you. It was water just running through you. At the end of it, you didn't really have much of a reaction. I didn't really feel like at the end of the day, it, it mattered. But, uh, but it happened, you know? And, and neither, nothing about it was bad, but it, it, nothing about it mattered. So that was kind of the, the takeaway there. Um, and it's, um, it's like... Considering, like, the intrigue and excitement around Jay after he lost to Ibushi on the second night of the second night of the Dome shows, it feels like this is regression, honestly. It feels like, like, what like what exactly does this do for Jay? You know, I get that you don't exactly want to want to pull the trigger on him as a, as a babyface yet. Maybe you want to wait, an, wait another year and a half, maybe two, if you, if you want, if you want to do that. But I don't think that this... It, it it feels like a step down, and I know that, and I, and I know that we're in a we're we're in a we're in a place where we're trying to uh, elevate this belt in order to be the secondary belt. I understand that, but at the same time, we need to be realistic on who Hiroshi on who Hiroshi Tanahashi is at this stage in the game, and beating Hiroshi Tanahashi here for the secondary belt just doesn't do much for jay white at this stage i'm sorry but like it doesn't and now jay white has won every single belt jay white has been iwgp champ he's been the u.s champ he's been never champ he's been ic champ he's been all these things but it feels kind of empty still it feels empty because he had like nothing has felt like a definitive uh big win or or, or or anything or big rain for jay and i think that just kind of like st- uh padding his stats and giving him stuff like this isn't isn't what's gonna elevate jay white uh for all this you could have just had fucking okan beat beat tanahashi honestly like i and i get it you're trying to build an- another drawing belt but I just don't think in the long run for Jay White, this is a thing that's going to help him. And maybe it does. Maybe he's maybe the matches and stories get more compelling. I don't know. But I just don't think this was a thing that at this stage in the game in 2021, 
helps Jay White. This is not 2018 Jay White, who's, uh, or 20, 2019 or 2018, whenever, whenever he came back, that's facing Tanahashi at the dome and the cachet at the, the cachet that Tanahashi still has and everything. This is, this is not that. We're, we're years removed from that. We're at a Tanahashi that is like finishing third or fourth. In the G in the G one blocks now, he's still great. Still one of the better wrestlers on the roster. The Shingo match is still one of the best matches of the year. But you know, a Jay White is above that, or Jay White should be treated like he's above that. And him eking out a win versus Tanahashi isn't a way to make feel like to make Jay feel like he's above that. Yeah, actually, as you were saying that in the hierarchy of everything, I think. And again, you say like sorry, or I don't want you know people to to get upset. But in the hierarchy of New Japan right now, without a doubt, Jay White is above Tanahashi. I I get that he's the champion right now, and I even get that Tanahashi is an all time great wrestler who is the ace and deserves a lot more credit than he will ever get for being the guy that helped bring New Japan out of the darkest timeline, really. Um, you know, the darkest kind of history of the company. Um, and really brought the company to where it was a global powerhouse or was becoming a global powerhouse and a, and a promotion that was had fans across the world. And Tanahashi deserves all the credit in the world for that. But at this time, right now, in the hierarchy of New Japan, Jay White's above Tanahashi. And he beating Tanahashi for the Never title is not a achievement for him. The Never title, unfortunately, is not an achievement for him. You haven't established the title. If anything, they should have kept the title on Tanahashi for longer... And establish the title as something important, but we haven't gotten there, and they just didn't really do it. And that's fine, I guess. You could probably establish the title better with Jay White right now than you can with Tanahashi, but, I mean, here's the issue, and I, I don't know. Like, is this something that can never be fixed, or is it something that is just we're at a time right now where people can't trust it, and maybe we can get there, especially with the, you know, the next match we'll talk about, but that... No matter how well you're presented, and no matter how long you're with the company, no matter what your history is, be it that you you know started from the dojo and worked your way to the top, foreigners in New Japan are never going to be seen as permanent fixtures. Not even necessarily that they can't get pushed to the top, but that they're not trusted as someone who's going to take roots in New Japan and, and stay there forever. Because... I mean, one person to point at would be, like, Kenny Omega. Like, he could have been the guy to buck that trend and be the foreigner who actually seemed like he stuck with Japan all the way. But as soon as he made it to the top and started to be treated as the champion, he, he left. And I think that we it might be a while before that stigma can be taken away. Because, like, before that, historically, you know, gaijin, outside talent, foreigners are you know hired guns and you understood that they came into japan and that was it they came into japan to be paid to be freelancers and to work they could win the championships but they're never the top guy um and they're never you know the person that people invest in or whatever and eventually it kind of felt like we were getting to a point where you could be and omega really felt like he was going to be the face of this new generation of foreigner who can come into a japanese wrestling company and actually be ingrained in the company and be part of it and he left and i think that, that really hurts that moving forward where a guy like jay white and then osprey maybe won't ever 
be able to have that buy-in where you think of them as again like a fixture rooted in the company because you'll always kind of think that they're going to just leave this is not really their home no matter what level of committed they seem to be to the company they can always just leave because you constantly hear the stories about oh jay white you know he might get signed he's gonna leave they just kind of ran an angle intentionally where they worked the fans into thinking that jay white wasn't going to renew his contract so it's like i don't know uh, do you think and, there's and like, anything I'm, to like, that from from, from from what from what i know like that wasn't entirely angle either like that like a lot of that was like serious there was actual discussion and uneasiness and uncertainness on what the future of jay white is that wasn't that wasn't entirely worked right yeah so it is like i think that there might be something there i don't know like do you kind of feel that here where it's like no you you can't necessarily like invest in jay white no matter what level he is he's the the i think they called him the quad slam champion because they didn't want to say grand slam because it's like a wwe thing did it am i right in, in hearing that i don't know if you listen to yeah, some, 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 some yeah, something something like that something 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 like that yeah i, I guess but like do, you, do um, you think that there's anything to that that like jay white can't feel like he's a, a new japan fixture because he's not japanese Okay, I think that that gets a little bit harder when you can only argue so many guys above Jay White in the hierarchy of New Japan. Sure. The only people that you can argue above him are your Okada, Ibushi, and Naito. That's all you can really argue above him. Um, And maybe Hiromu. But Hiromu's always injured or something going on to to the point where like... You know that that's that's hard to even uh, consider there, but um, I think that that does play a part here. Well, let me ask you this: Do you think that if events weren't getting postponed, do you think that Will Osprey would have beaten Okada at the at the uh, at the Tokyo Dome show? Huh. I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think, think he would have. I think Okada would have won the title. I think it would have made I, sense. I, I couldn't see that. I, I, I think I think Osprey would have beat him. You think so? Yeah, I mean, look, they've been telling a long-term story with Osprey. They've clearly have had plans with Osprey for forever, and he got his he got his win last year in the G one. But he got it through the mm-hmm. through the, through the cheating, and Okada then beats him and uses the Rainmaker for the first time in however long, and uh, yeah. vanquishes Osprey. There, it would make sense for Osprey to get a clean win over Okada. But I, I get that, and at the time when I talked about it for the the Wrestle Kingdom, I did say that like. It didn't make sense for that in that part of the story for Okada to use the Rainmaker yet. It felt like it was too early uh, because Osprey hadn't got a clean win over him yet. Um, so I could see that the next step would be the Osprey clean win. Like you kind of have to tell that story. But my my only issue with it would be Osprey going to G One as champion. Like I just right. do you think that they're at the level yet where they're ready to have because. The champion in the G1 has to basically win almost every match. They're going to lose, like, maybe 
three matches at the most, probably two, you know, and, you know, maybe even just one match throughout the whole tournament. Like, they're not going to lose a ton. And are they at the point where they are ready to have Osprey beat everyone? Because that's what would have to happen in the G1 is he would have to beat everyone in his block. And I don't know. Like, you're going from a guy who was in the tournament as a junior. I think so. You think that he's ready? I think ready? so. I think... I think that they are in on it. Like, I think that they're in on him to that degree. Not like yeah. I like if you look at the if you're looking at this Osprey versus Okada was, you know, you can say whatever you want about Ibushi versus Ibushi versus Naito and it was good, but the real main event was whatever was going to be on night 2. Okada versus Okada versus Osprey was the second biggest match of that weekend. Sure. Or 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 of the or, or of that pair of shows. So to me that already showed a level of commitment and trust in Osprey, and looking at this, and he's won the New Japan Cup. He just beat Shingo in his first defense, and went out there and wrestled that long with him. And now he is going back. Was going back to facing Okada. Do I really think that he would have went in? Could it could have went into G One as champion and only took maybe like two or three losses? Yeah, I th- I think that they're. And on Osprey to that level where I could totally see them doing that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if we're quite there. It's like his third G1. Is it his third or his fourth? Like, and it, uh, third. And, he's, and the first one he comes in, he's a junior, and he basically loses every match. The second one, he does okay. You think that by the third one, there? I mean, he beats he, 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 he beats Tanahashi in it. Sure. So yeah. like, so even so even so so even then he beat 2019 Tanahashi in. You know, the year before Tanahashi was main, was main eventing the dome. Yeah, that's fair. so. Th- that's what I'm saying. Like they've always had this kind of level of this kind of level of investment in Osprey, though. So sure. would it shock me in 2021 that this guy then only loses two or three matches in the G1? Yeah, no, it wouldn't shock me at all. Was his debut New Japan match the title match with Kushida, the junior title match? It was, yeah. It was. And then he goes on to win the best of the Super Juniors relatively quickly. Was it like the next like? kind of year that he was in the super juniors i think no he, he won he won he, he won it he won it that year then lost to kushida at dominion right and then and then and then everyone was so upset because then after that osprey doesn't really do anything right. he doesn't win the title he has the best of the super juniors final against kushida and loses that and then uh after that then we get into the fall and he uh had there's like that's the hot that's the hot potato uh title stuff going on yeah and then after that, then he gets his, like, actual title reign and everything. Yeah. It's interesting because he didn't really... They were definitely into him, but he didn't really ever have, like, a long junior ace run before they moved him up to heavyweight. So... He kind he kind of does. But not, like, like, long, long, but yeah. It's, it's, like a, it's like a year it's like a year and a half sure really like, like a year and a half kind of thing yeah that's fair so I mean they're into him they're, I think they're actually, him actually maybe, sure. maybe not a year maybe not even a year and a half it's maybe more like two years honestly like it goes from huh. that fatal four that it goes from that fatal four way um in 2018 and when he, when he wins the belt and goes on and goes on his title run up and up until really the Hiromu match from last year yeah I guess so I that's, guess that was pretty so, long yeah, so yeah, Man. so it's really like a two, like a two year like a two year run where I would say that he is like the junior guy. Yeah, so they, I mean, they are definitely behind him, and they kind of always have been. Um, and they've kept him 
relatively strong. They push him pretty strong. The only times that he's really eaten losses was when he was like being treated as a junior that was in the G1 rather than being a heavyweight. So, I mean, yeah, I could see it. Give the, And it does make sense on the back and forth thing. You wouldn't have him lose to Okada twice in a row. So it might be time for him to beat Okada. And then, yeah, do you really, I don't know, do they also want to have Okada as the champion going into the G1? Maybe not at this point. Okay, well, let, well, let, well let's get into Shingo, Shingo versus Osprey now. Um, yeah, let's, let's start talking know, about the match. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't see that. I didn't see this live. Couldn't have paid me to watch this live. Oh, no. Um, and then I just saw the, like, you know, in the chat that, oh, they went 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's, in- <laughs> that's intimidating. Yeah. Uh, but with all that being said, I thought this was great. I thought this was, re- I thought this was really good. I thought that for all the skepticism and worries that you may have going into a match like this with these two and it going that long, that it was really good. I thought this was uh, the best uh, uh, in control, in command performance I've seen from I've seen from Osprey. I thought Shingo was incredible with his selling and his facial ex- and his facial expressions and everything and everything that he conveyed there throughout throughout the match i thought that there the first 20 minutes i didn't feel like it was boring at all i felt like it was breezy and fun to watch and kept my and kept my attention and i didn't it didn't have me checking my phone or getting bored or, any, or anything like that and obviously the fireworks are spectacular it's shingo and will osprey the fireworks are amazing here but what i'll say is obviously shingo has like these aces in his hole right like the last falconry or the last falconry off the top, or his big lariats that you know when like the, when you uh, when you're waiting for them to come during the finishing stretch of a match, they still provide this big oh shit moment even after he hits like the made in Japan and you know that things are getting serious. Um, so I felt like Shingo still had more, had, still has some stuff in the tank as this match is coming to uh, as as this match feels like it's coming to a, coming to its end, and I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, what does Osprey have left to do? And I was thinking, like, man, did Will, has Will Osprey run out of bombs here? And then Osprey does the Rainmaker. And usually Osprey's use of the Rainmaker, historically, and, we, and like you watch the same English independent shows that I've watched, so you can attest to how, like, cor- how corny and inorganic Osprey's Rainmaker spots are. Um, but in this context... And him busting it out as sort of a, la- a sort of a last resort thing, and it leading straight into the finish with him doing the uh, the big elbow, and then the stormbreaker. I actually really liked that. I thought that was uh, very creative, and the only time in which I've ever liked him using the rainmaker. And in a moment where I was like, "Wow, does Will Osprey not have any more big moves left in order to make this finish feel impactful?" He bust out the rainmaker and shut me up. As a comparison to the Moriarty versus Yuta match, it is it is kind of uh, you know that that example of what what a rivalry can be. You know, we talked about them trying to build that into an epic rivalry, and here we do have the epic rivalry. Um, but you talked about like the Rainmaker being this this reference to the other feud. It's a, a similar thing, like with the Moriarty and and uh, and Yuta thing, where he's using using each other's moves in other matches to like call each other out. It was. Perfectly positioned here. It 
you got it instantly you know you understand what's going on there so yeah like that was perfect but the 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 rivalry and the competitiveness between these two um i was going to say you know before you kind of talked about it the best you said best you know osprey heel in control performance i i mean i to me this is the best osprey heel performance i've seen in a match not you know promos or whatever other stuff you want to say but even the progress heel stuff like the the even the stuff with the swords of essex when they kind of had their heel run like i don't think he had any matches where he was a better heel performer than this i don't know what do you think um i really liked him in the tlc match against aussie open but if you wanted to say that this was the straight up best osprey hill performance i wouldn't i wouldn't fight you at all on that one i think that's i think that's very i think that's very fair yeah i think that it's um it's it's a lot less it's, it's a lot less theatrical in in uh in um feeling like ooh look at me I'm playing a bad guy yes than 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 other than his other heel work has been it feels more of like matter of fact I am a heel I fully believe that I am a heel I'm not trying to play a heel uh feel to it instead of no, it's always Will Ospreay just trying to be a heel because this is the story that they're telling. Yeah. I thought mixing in high spots where they felt necessary um, rather than just doing them as his main offense, uh, having control throughout, using under some underhanded tactics, aggressiveness, all of that. Like Again, like you said, this is, this is not... Osprey playing heel. This is the champion, the top guy, Osprey, and he just is a heel. And you're finally kind of, at least for me, finally harnessing the parts of his personality that make you dislike him <laughs> and then turning it into the wrestler. And I think that he's always had a really hard time with that because I think that there is a, a disconnect, or at least there was, I think, a disconnect in his mind about what it is that people don't like about him. Because I think maybe, hopefully, he's at least becoming self-aware enough to realize why everybody seems to not like him. Why people dislike this guy online and stuff. And I'm kind of hoping that we see him finally get it <laughs> and harness it properly to use what the issues you know about his personality are that make you dislike him and use it in his wrestling character. Because I'm, I'm, I was kind of actually seeing that here, and I was, it was, appreciating that, um, to say like, yeah, this guy, this guy is a dick. He's really fucking cocky. He's, you know, really, really self-absorbed, and he thinks that he he's better than he is. He thinks he's better than everyone, and really up until this point, you don't really get that from him. You get like over the top, kind of playing heel like you said but you know and then especially the progress heel stuff was terrible because it just felt like he was trying to be jimmy havoc and be the like sinister evil thing and that it worked in some ways but it really felt super forced because the the, the reason why people dislike will osprey is not that he's evil and sinister the reason why people dislike osprey is he comes across like a fucking thoughtless prick who who really doesn't take the time 
to consider what other people, you know, feel about stuff. And he just thinks about himself and his only opinion on the world. So that's like what makes him an asshole. And this is kind of what you get here. Uh, less evil and more just a, a dickhead. Um, so, yeah. Again, this match I thought was was really good from beginning to end. They they told insane stories, like they continued to reference spots and build to things. The fucking headbutting each other on all fours, standing up into the mat, like that really felt like Osprey playing into Shingo's world. Like they did a really good job of that. These guys are such a great rivalry because they both can can tease going into each other's world. You got Shingo doing the poison rana. He's playing Osprey's game. Osprey doing the headbutts and the and the striking. He's going into Shingo's game. Like the way that they go back and forth with each other and play with each other that way, it's perfect. Um, so yeah, I just phenomenal rivalry. And I mentioned to you to talk about Shingo and to bring this up. And this match, I think, is another is part of this conversation. We talk about Daniel Bryan as the greatest of all time, but since Daniel Bryan returned to wrestling in 2018 he has you know a handful of phenomenal matches here and there usually about like three or four per year and then meanwhile in that same time frame Shingo is having you know anywhere from a half dozen to a dozen great matches in every calendar year and do we get to a point where because Daniel Bryan is on the back end and he's not continuing to deliver at this level that Shingo surpasses Daniel Bryan because he's just continuing to put more and more great matches on his resume. I don't know that I would say for sure, but like, it doesn't seem like the most insane thing to say that Shingo is not like building to having a better resume just because he's at a point where he's still delivering. And Daniel Bryan is, like I said, he still has great matches, but nowhere near the, the amount that Shingo does every year. Um, I think that like, at that point it becomes like a, what you're looking for thing. Like Shingo's going to have, the better match you know Shingo versus Taichi is better than the random Daniel Bryan versus Baron Corbin or Daniel Bryan versus Colin Cassidy match that we might get stuck with but is Shingo gonna have a performance as good as Dan Bryan's performances in the Brock match or any of the AJ matches or the Kofi Kingston match or the Elimination Chamber like you know that that I think I think I think that more so becomes a part of the conversation is that what exactly are we looking for when we're uh when we're gauging this and i don't think it's wrong to have shingo in these conversations i mean look the dude's consistency is relatively unparalleled for the last uh last going like going on three years at this point um and i think that yeah like the last few years he's definitely had better years than brian because brian's volume just can't match what shingo is doing in an all-time capacity, like the fucking GWE, look, if you're someone like Allen or Case and you have Shingo as your n- number one wrestler ever, I don't think that's insane. I don't think that's wild. I think that I think he has a very solid argument for that. Um, but personally, I'm still looking for that variety for that for that variety factor. And while Shingo can go out there and have like the Shingo match and the Shingo match is going to be awesome every single time. And Shingo's greatness goes beyond the quote unquote Shingo match. It goes into his selling, his facial expressions, his mannerism, his timing, 
the way he has all the, multiple moves and multiple spots to feel important and everything like that that makes Shingo a great wrestler. I've also seen Daniel Bryan do incredible things with people that have never had matches as good as they had with him. So I I don't I don't know, but I don't think it's wrong to have to eventually start having Shingo in, in uh, as part of as part of that dialogue. Yeah, and I I don't even necessarily think that it's like I'm not saying this is a slam dunk case and I'm trying to prove that Shingo is number one, but I am, what I am trying to point out is that if you're a consistency rater, if you try to claim that your ratings are based on consistent performance and the quality of those performances, just like you said, like, I mean, even calling it a Shingo match feels, I won't say disingenuous because I, I think, and I know that you mean it when you say that. But Shingo's style and the Shingo match is so varied and has he's able to do so course, much yeah. in in the context of a Shingo match that the matches are not like formulaic and all the same style. Right? But it is definitely it's definitely there's not a lot of stuff that feels like outside of that realm, but it's such a large realm that it's like comparatively when you use that kind of term on someone, you usually mean like a super limited style of match, right? Um, and he can do a ton of different stuff, but he doesn't necessarily go outside of his comfort zone. Now, if you are someone who's going to rate things on peaks and you're going to talk about stuff that really stands out and you know has emotional investment and, and variability and all that stuff, then sure, like Shingo is not number one. But yeah, if you're... If you're starting to look at stuff and you rate things on consistency, I think it's really tough to 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 talk about a lot of people who go much higher than Shingo when it comes to consistency. The level of performances that you get and the amount, just the sheer volume of great performances and great matches that you get from Shingo for basically 20 years at this point, you know, like the guy has been delivering this well for his entire career. And you could say the same thing about Daniel Bryan for sure, you know, and even longer. It's like slightly longer. Um, and yeah, so I'm just I'm just kind of looking at it where we where it get to the point and it's like, at what point does does Shingo start to put together a resume with an amount, just a sheer mass and volume of output that's like hard to overlook unless you just you're purely like saying like, oh, well, you're you're basing it off of uh off of like these peaks and having these high level emotional investment matches and that kind of stuff um, rather than just the quality. And that's fine. Like, I don't mind how people judge things, but I do think it's disingenuous to even like use the consistency metric as like saying that that's important to you and then overlook Shingo as one of the greats. You know what I mean? I also, I also think um, that the thing that makes Shingo such an interesting guy to watch out for is that Shingo is doing this after already having a decade plus of being an incredible worker that if so, if he was on someone's top 100 that if you know if you watch Dragon Gate like you wouldn't scoff at it and now he's come to New Japan and he's been the best guy since he's come, like since he's came there and there's no sign of slowing down at all right like that's 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 what makes his case so so interesting because the thing that makes Shingo a great wrestler aren't necessarily tied to like age and athleticism either. And with that being said, and Shingo's only still only like 30, 36, 37. Right. Uh 
that yeah, there's no reason, especially if this guy's gonna his at this point his floor is Ishii and his ceiling is like he could be he could be champion. I think he really does have like a champion ceiling, and I eventually could see him getting that never t- never title back. Honestly, even though they're trying to ascend it and bring it back up, I could see him getting that never title back. Yeah. Um. That for that guy, if he wanted to go for another four or five years, I wouldn't doubt it, and I could still see him being the best worker on the roster four or five years from now. And at that point, yeah, like there really isn't an argument against Shingo. It just would depend on the things you value when uh, how much you like Shingo's matches and something as subjective as that. But really by that point, there isn't an argument against him unless you're just not a fan. Right. If for some reason he his shit just really doesn't speak to you, which, you know, I guess that, that kind of stuff happens. You know, there's just certain people who have certain tastes. But yeah, I just think that as you brought up his the longevity that he's already had on top of yeah when he came into new japan it felt like the conversation was like oh he's he's gonna retire he's coming into new japan to get some checks and and you know maybe have like one or two good matches per year and then like basically eventually just stop wrestling quietly um but instead he's come in here and it feels like he's poised to just have another a second career basically and just run through yeah. this until his body falls apart and who fucking knows like you can't say because you never hear stories about shingo having nagging injuries like you do with everyone else you know you just don't hear that about shingo he's not taking time off you know he's a tank and his matches you talk about you you know you mentioned like it doesn't need athleticism but i mean when he gets going he's standing toe-to-toe here with osprey who's in his peak as an athletic performer and, and he's not missing a step so athletically he's still there um but yeah just a guy who i think when you're starting to talk about you know people are talking about gwe cases i'm not saying you know you have to have him number one i'm just saying like if you try to use an argument about longevity for someone else um you can't really overlook shingo when it comes to consistency and longevity because he's yeah amazingly consistent and he's been doing it for like 20 years and uh just the output of him is phenomenal it's just super impressive comparatively to the history of wrestling really you get to a point where it's really hard to overlook just how long he's been going and how long he's just been having phenomenal matches every time he's up to bat um welcome um, oh, I'm, I'm sorry i got i got distracted here because oh, no. remember, remember when i was in the remember when i was in the chat how many months ago and i was talking about the dude that was saying that uh that like black people are like the like the real um, indigenous people of America. Oh yes, yes. Uh, I actually was gonna bring some of this kind of stuff up to you, but anyways, go ahead. Okay, this dude last week published a video called "Harriet Tubman is a fictional character created by an act of Congress and Sarah Bradford in 1869." <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, I like this. I like where this is going. I <laughs> this I. I'm terrified to watch this. That is... I don't know why I came. I don't know what. I don't know why I came in my came in my uh, in my recommended. But man, I I might have to watch this. Was it is it a DOS or is it just DOS that people call it? Uh, it's more like uh FBA. Like ADOS is like the African descendants yeah, of slaves, yeah. and then like that. That's like, but then like FBA is like founding Black Americans, right. and that 
comes with the belief that we are the um, the true indigenous people of of America, and that the and that the reason why uh, that it was a mass cover up to say that they're like the indigenous people that we think of are of of as indigenous um, aren't the real ones because they want to avoid giving the real black indigenous people their reparations right. by <laughs> yeah like the, it's, it's 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 the same family tree though yeah well i was gonna say because i've heard some people i remember you getting into it and then i was recently hearing people who i like it's at least somewhat respect their opinions and they were saying being more sympathetic to to ados but i wasn't sure if you were shitting on ados because those same people were talking about how like ados has been somewhat like hijacked um because the ADOS movement is more directly linked to like the concepts of reparations, but there's like some really shitty people who have like hijacked the ADOS thing and like try. Who are, like, uh, I wouldn't even say hi- I, I, w- I wouldn't even say hijacked. I mean, like that's what, kind of like what ADOS like always kind of was. Like, yeah, like Yvette, um, or the fuck her name was, like, uh, it's like the po- it's like the poster child for it. But even if you just like. Go like go on like look at clubhouse rooms or yeah, yeah. whatever the fuck like you'll find like you, people that like even if it's not the big figureheads that then you know got all the uh, got all the other notoriety it's people that almost have like this this uh this dislike for people that eventually came from the America eventually came to America. That um well black people that came to America that aren't uh directly uh products of the uh Af- African diaspora to America right like you know if you came from Nigeria in the last fifty years or whatever then that kind of stuff or if you're someone from Jamaica yeah. or Haiti and that kind of yeah, stuff yeah I was gonna say like Afro Dominican or something. Yeah, like that, like that kind of stuff, and then getting into oh, like, yeah, like, uh, our reparations should come first because we've been here the longest and all that. Okay, which is all right, that's fine. But in order to, but you're also kind of dismissing the fact that the black people that are from, uh, you know, the Haiti, Dominican Republic, Cuba, Colombia. Chile, Nicaragua, whatever the fuck, like that, their lives have also been directly impacted by the United States, right? And are probably <laughs> um, also de- descendants of slaves, or at least there can be a mix of people. Yeah, they're also just, descendants yeah. of slaves. Yeah, so maybe not American slavery, obviously, um, but their but their lives are all have also been directly fucked up and um, and compromised through the meddling hands of the u.s and that it feels like ados kind of like lacks like an understanding or a kind of sympathy for the fact that hey like you're not the only black people that america fucked over so it's like like yeah like that like that's and then the fba is kind of in the same family maybe a little bit more weird or radical because then yeah we're the true indigenous people <laughs> and all that kind of all, all that kind of shit <laughs> Which it's like, yeah, I mean, whatever. Um, you know, there's... You start getting into weird, like, Hotep, Black Israelite stuff where it's just like, is it counterfactuals? Or 
is it like weird generalizations where you're like i don't know were, were there black native americans i mean probably like you know i won't even there was there was there was there was contact between africa yeah. and well the americas like so do i believe that like some Africans maybe stayed in America? Like, sure. Yeah, yeah. I believe that. I believe that this was like this mass thing and this like this no, like all the native all the indigenous indigenous Americans actually look like this. No, like I, I don't I don't I don't buy that at all. But yeah, there is documented contact between Africa and the Americas, like before slavery for sure. Right. Yeah, it's just yeah, there's definitely there's definitely stuff there, and I'm like recently hearing some 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 things that I had never really heard before about like just the the genetic makeup and and again just leaning into like how race is a construct and not real and all that stuff and just talking about like um, uh, sickle cell and how sickle cell basically is like a North African um, disease. So it's like even that it's like it's a regionality thing. So there, it's like even more proof, or at least like an example of the idea that it's like not a. Uh, there's no like real genetic disposition when it comes to like, oh, you know, you're you're black, so that means that like you're this race, like it doesn't exist. So the idea that there could be like wildly appearing, not you know, not wildly, but like randomly appearing black people who fit like the description of what it is to be black that just show up in, in a ton of different places throughout history. Of course it just happens because it's not a, it's not like something that is genetically predisposed. It's something that just kind of can exist. It's a, a variance within the right. same genome. So it's just like, Oh, okay, cool. Like there's black, there's people who present as black and there's people who present as white, you know, it just, it happens. But <laughs> that is again like i totally agree with the concepts that like i agree with the concepts that ados proposes when it comes to reparations like you know i do think that people who have ha like have ancestry from slaves deserve some form of reparations i think that it should happen but like trying to split hairs and measure like blood quantum to prove who's the most slavish black yeah, person. Yeah, it's like it's like it's like oh. yeah, like like it's like, like but at that point it gets like it's like a measuring suffering yeah. kind of thing. And it's just like it's not that's not going to help anybody. And the, and then and then like um we can like end this after this, but like my thing is in like like after that they don't have any other like political opinions or stances. <laughs> like all all it is is just like reparations and then it's like no critical thought after that like reparations are just like okay that's it cool like we're done fighting great job guys we did it and then like there's like no other depth of analysis after that right and it is like good luck doing reparations getting reparations after like adding all of these fucking levels of bureaucracy to like prove who gets reparations like and also, like, there's like, there's no money that could like, like, sure. really, like, there's no, there's no monetary value that could really reflect on the horrors that have like gone on for however many years. Like, it'd be weird to be like, yeah, in order to uh, make right everything that we all right the damage that our ancestors have caused, uh, Black Americans, we're gonna. Um, in uh, we're gonna inject um, let's say like fucking uh, eight hundred billion 
dollars worth of capital into um into our black communities or whatever the fuck like one what's like you know like the donald trump platinum plan kind, yeah, of, kind of shit right. right like like hey okay like one like what are we calling a black community and then two it's like <laughs> like do i really think that 800 billion like really like accurately gets the idea of like what you did to people for however for like however long like no not really of course right. well you know it's the idea of money is an equalizer all this and that but you know whatever anyways quentin final words final thoughts and we can let the people go i guess yeah uh this is usually our aftershock talk <laughs> so i guess <laughs> guys like that i guess that's what this podcast can become but yeah uh wrestling's weird right now maybe we'll talk about ddt maybe we'll talk about dragon gate next next episode uh champions carnival either of us haven't really seen much of that so i'm going to do some catch up on that this week and maybe we'll throw some of that in there but other than that thank you all for listening and hope here next time i love plenty wet